You're listening to the We Talk Seahawks podcast, a podcast brought to you by Seahawks UK. Stay tuned to our weekly episodes for pre-game and post-game shows, as well as fun and engaging discussions, and hopefully some special guest interviews along the way. Thank you for listening, stay tuned, and go Hawks! Ladies and gentlemen, Seahawks and football fans everywhere, welcome back to the We Talk Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, James, as always. With me tonight, I have Pietro. Pietro, how are you, mate? I'm good, mate. Thanks. Good, good. As always, we've got Matt as well. Matt, how are you? Hello, yeah, I'm I'm pretty good. We're, we're feeling a little bit achy today because I had my uh, first training session in the helmets and pads uh, yesterday oh, yeah. for the first time in over a year. Very nice. Yeah, we're still feeling it today. Feeling it. <laughs> we are feeling <laughs> a bit rough. I don't blame you. And of course, joining us tonight is our very special guest. He's a former first-round pick in the 1992 NFL draft from the Seahawks. He's enjoyed a fantastic nine-year career in the NFL, spending time both with the Seahawks and the Detroit Lions. And I'm sure he's got some fantastic stories to tell us this evening. So, very warm welcome to the brilliant Ray Roberts. Ray, thanks for joining us, mate. How are you, son? Thanks for having me, man. I, I wish that I could say that my body is aching because I just had on the pads <laughs> yesterday, but I, I think it's because I'm getting old. No. <laughs> so, so just moving around makes my body ache and hurt. So uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy to be here. No, no. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, yeah, can't wait to start of getting to this. And, and I think we've got some some good questions lined up and hopefully we'll uh, we'll have some fun tonight. So uh, we'll start off, um, I'll take on a, a bit of a trip down memory lane if we can, um, all the way back to 1992. Like, like you say, that'll probably seem a million miles away from, from where we are today. Um, but take me back to the evening of, of the NFL draft, 92, sort of what were the emotions sitting there? In the, cause obviously you were, you were in attendance of the, of, of the draft night, weren't you? You were, you were there. I can't, where was it? I can't. Yeah, I, I think it was in New York, but I, yeah. I actually chose not to go to the draft site. Oh, um, because I had uh, my I have a, a pretty big family and I had a lot of other people that I wanted to experience that moment with my yeah. girlfriend who ended up being my wife and her family. Um, and so they only allowed you to bring a certain number of people. And so I just felt like the moment was too big to not share it with all of them. So I just I just stayed at my apartment in Charlottesville. Nice. Uh, which was jam packed <laughs> with, with folks, but uh, but it was it was an interesting day because mm. um, you know the Indianapolis Colts had the first two picks in the draft, mm. and when I woke up that morning, uh, I had gotten a call from them, and they said that if they were going to go with offense with the second pick because they were already going to draft Steve Vipman, the defensive tackle out of Washington, mm-hmm. with the first pick. And so they said, if we go offense with the second pick, you're like number one on our board. So like I woke up thinking like, man, there's a chance I'm going to be the second pick in the draft. And uh, and so they ended up going uh, with Quentin Corriott at number two. And then the next call I get was from the Dallas Cowboys. And they were like, hey, we have a scout in the area and we want to know if he could come and watch the draft with you. And so I didn't know, you know, if that was you know, I'm thinking like, is that legal to do? Like, I, I didn't know. What. <laughs> so I called my agent who was on his way to my apartment. I said, hey, man, I got this call from the Cowboys and they want this dude to come watch the draft with us. Like, can you know, should we do that? And he goes, yeah, sure. So obviously, you know, we didn't have cell phone. I didn't have a cell phone back then. So I had to pick up the landline, call him back. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, he can. Uh, yeah, we can have him before I could even hang the phone up. The dude was knocking on the door. So he obviously was standing right outside the door 
just waiting for the okay if he could come to this draft party or not. Well, and uh, and so that was kind of weird, first of all, because I'm just like, <laughs> dude, I just hung the phone up. Like, how did you get here so fast? You know? <laughs> and uh, and so he came in, and so their plan was they. I think they had like two picks in the first round, but it was down near like 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. And uh, and they were trying to trade up. So anytime one of the teams called with with interest uh, around drafting me, I'd give him the phone, and then they were trying to work trades up. So uh, I think the first team that showed interest was Atlanta at eight, and they ended up drafting Bob Whitfield out of Stanford. And then I think Cleveland or Cincinnati, somebody like that was nine, and then obviously Seattle was ten. So – uh, he was on the phone with both of those, all those teams, and uh, but nobody wanted to trade, trade up. Uh, I mean, trade down. Um, and so that was pretty interesting, just watching all of that stuff happen right there in front of you, and him having these conversations. The thing with the Cowboys at the time is that they would ask you to agree to a contract before they drafted you. So they had like this, they had the framework of a contract, and then they'd be like, "Hey, if you agree to these terms, then we draft you." And so. But part of their terms were uh, that they wouldn't include, if a quarterback was drafted above you, they wouldn't include that quarterback's numbers. And it's like, right. well, then, it's like, well, then that's not cool. Like, you know, <laughs> it's not my fault the dude got drafted before I did, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so I said no to them around that thing, but, you know, eventually they didn't, they didn't end up drafting me. But then the next call I get is the Seahawks. And so the Seahawks kind of come at me with the same kind of thing. Like, hey, we got this contract. We're going to take the average of this many players and blah, 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 blah. And we're like, no, just already, you know, turn that down, you know, with the with this idea with the Cowboys. And uh, and so then, you know, we had some more conversation there telling me about the weather in Seattle and the rain and the team and all this so other kind of stuff. Then. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I have never been I had never been further west than like Chicago. So. <laughs> Like from from Virginia, so like I like honestly, I'm just like I don't even I don't even, I can't even put my finger to where Seattle was. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and so it's just kind of it's kind of funny. And so then they were like, okay, so you know, came back about agreeing to the contract, and I'm just like, nah, you know, we're not gonna do that. Then they're like, oh, okay, well, we'll talk to you later. So then I'm thinking like, oh shoot, like what just happened? Like did I just ruin my chance? You know, to get drafted like in the top ten picks, and so. I went back into the family room where my everybody was sitting and me and my agent and he he's like looking at me. I'm just like, dude, I don't know what just happened. They just said, talk to you later. That's the end of the call. And then uh, and so we're sitting there like on pins and needles. Well, the there's a guy, they write the, the name down on the card and then that guy walked, walked it up to the commissioner. And mm-hmm. usually when back then when he handed it to the commissioner, he would repeat the name just for to the, uh, the commissioner could pronounce it correctly yeah and i heard him say ray roberts and like and so then i just just held my tongue nobody else because everybody else in the room eating and having a good time and all this (laughs) other kind of stuff even the scout from from dallas like was eating all our food like it was just like it's like dude slow down bro like like you weren't even invited originally to the party so he's a big guy too and it's like we didn't even have you know we have enough food for us and like you're in here crushing it but uh uh, but yeah, so I heard the, the dude say my name, and so then when they announced my name, it just everybody just went berserk, and it was it was awesome because my parents were sitting, you know, right beside me, my girlfriend was beside me, and uh, you know, for my family, you know, obviously it's a big deal. You know, I'm the youngest of four kids, and we we're really really poor, and and uh, and so just it was, you know, lack of a better phrase to say it, it was kind of like you know hitting a lottery for our family just to kind of have some 
some uh, some financial security uh, that way. And then when I look back at the pictures, though, the thing that was pretty funny that day, without even knowing, I had on a I had on this green T-shirt, mm. and it was it it was made so that the if you roll the sleeves up, it had a color underneath the sleeve, and underneath the sleeve because I had it rolled up was blue. So I already wow. had on the I already had on the Seattle colors <laughs> and without even knowing it. You know what I'm saying? It was just like, and I and I didn't even think about it. It's just like one of my favorite T-shirts. I just put it on, and uh, and and then when afterwards, you know, we had these. My my uh, girlfriend's dad's a photographer. He had all these pictures and things, and I was like, oh man, look at this! Like I actually had on the Seattle colors and didn't even didn't even wow. realize it. You know, so it was to me. It was just it was kind of uh, meant to be, uh, and so it, it was an unbelievable day. Like I partied like crazy. Um, I, I think I had to, the next morning. I had to be in D.C. to fly out to Seattle to do the press conference. I think I went right from the bar to the airport to Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. Like, it was like, I don't think I slept at all. I think my, I told my agent where I was going, and there's a there's a bar on, on campus at UVA. Uh, the dude used to be a UVA football player, so he had already set it up for the, for the after-draft party. And so, like, a lot of my teammates were there, just people from Charlottesville and UVA were there already. And so, honestly, my agent pulled up. It was like, okay, dude, we got to get to D.C. to the airport. And I got in the car and went to D.C. to the airport, wow. jumped on the flight, flew to Seattle. And, uh, and so that's how the whole draft night and that next day went. Wow. Because like you say, like, you know, a lot of people think, you know, you don't realize when you sat with your family there to, to hear your name called, like, as much as it's a life-changing moment for you and it's everything that you've worked for, like you say, from coming from your background with, you know, from a poorer background and not born mm -hmm. into wealth or anything like that, it's it's just a bigger moment for your family and for your mother and your parents and your siblings, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's, it's also, you know, too, like, you know, even my neighborhood, you know, I just yeah. wanted to be an example to folks that, like you can find a pathway out, you know what I'm saying? It does, you know, you don't have to like, you know, join gangs or crime or whatever, you know, like there's like, it's hard work, you know, obviously, but there's a, there's a way to get out. So I just, I also wanted to kind of set the tone for some, some young folks that were coming behind me. And you know, we ended up having, um, there's a guy named Leonard Little that played for the Rams for a long time at defensive end, outside linebacker. He's one of the better pass rushers in the league. He came from my high school uh, after I did. There was a running back named John Avery, who was a first-round pick out of Ole Miss to um, the Dolphins after I after I came out. And we've had two or three or four or five other guys, you know, that have gone to the league since then. And so I just always wanted to be like the uh, – the person that was kind of leading the way. And so I, I, I welcomed that type of pressure and that type of responsibility because I felt like I could handle it and both on the field, off the field, just my personality, the, the way I get along with people and carry myself and things like that. I just felt like if I could kind of set the tone and show people that, um, that they can, you know, don't let their circumstances define what their future is going to be. Um, then I, then that was part of it too. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Pez, do you want to go, mate? Yeah. I just wanted to ask you, um, before I got into my question, did you have a preferred team in the draft? Well, I grew up a Dallas Cowboy fan. And so, obviously, when the Cowboys called and, and, you know, and said that they were interested, like, my heart probably, like, my heart rate probably went up about five or six times. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, like, how can this be coming true, right? Like, you start out as a little kid, having this dream of playing in the NFL 
and you're watching, you know, the, the Dallas Cowboys and Ed Tuttle Jones and Randy White and Roger Staubach and Tony Dorsett, and like uh, Tom Landry, like all this stuff, you know, uh, one of the one of the it wasn't as big back then as it is now. But back then, every now and again, a team may bring you in to their facility before the draft. And so one of the places that I got to go visit was the Cowboys. And so obviously, like I was starstruck, you know, like walking through there, walking with Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones. And you walk into the locker room and that's Troy Aikman and and uh, Michael Irvin and, and Emmett Smith. And they're introducing them to me. And, and Michael Irvin is saying, like, man, if you can just keep them out for like. 2.3 seconds, I'm going to get open, you know, like stuff like that. You know, it's just like, wow, like Michael Irvin is, is speaking to me. You know what I'm saying? And so it's uh, so that was that was pretty incredible. So I grew up a huge Cowboy fan. And uh, and, you know, in, in high school, um, I mean, uh, when I got to college, I was playing offensive line. Uh, I wore number 72 because of Ed Tuttle Jones. And so uh, so I was a huge Cowboy fan. But the other part of it is like, you know, today guys get really caught up into like, what where they're drafted like if they're the number one pick or they're in the second round or the third round and all that stuff like i wasn't like i just want to get to the nfl bro mm -hmm. like it didn't matter i didn't, i don't care like i didn't care if i was the top 10 or the bottom 10 like just get me in like i just it's just a it, either way it goes it was a dream come true and so it wasn't like a a hit at my my uh uh ego or anything like that that bob whitfield was the you know i was generally considered the top tackle in the country but you know he was a probably like a year younger than I was, so they were looking at that too. And uh, he played in the Pac-10 at the time, so they probably had a little better competition than the ACC. So he went; the, he was the first tackle taken to Atlanta. So like today, people take that stuff personally, like, "Oh, I should have been the pick." And that, blah, blah. it's like, man, like you're in the league, dude. Like you're yeah. living a dream. Like this is something you've dreamed about your whole entire life, and then you're gonna boil it down to like being like having this chip on your shoulder because you weren't the first of your position taken or you're the second quarterback taken. Like, come on, bro. Like, this is like people would die to have this opportunity and you're going to chalk it up to something so trivial like that. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Um, especially I've been following the NFL for about, I'd say, 10 years now. Um, and in the last five years, I've noticed a lot more that the I think it might come from the media because I've noticed the media talk about these players like, oh, but he was only a fifth rounder. Like, yeah. it discredits who he is, like what he's achieved to just, like you said, get into the league. And the media, these guys who just sit and make new, like make stories up and just want to try and sell stuff. They're like, oh, he's only a fifth rounder. Well, what round did yeah. you go in, mate? Like, yeah. <laughs> we well, all played yeah. NFL in in yeah. college, and you wish the you could media, be there. The media has become like a double edged sword, right? Like originally, it's to like help you know promote the game, and that helps drive viewership, which then helps drive you know TV you know, money, which drives con you know money for the NFL, like, all that kind of stuff. But but nowadays, uh, so many people are trying to make their come up, you know, doing all this, uh, you know. TV stuff around sports in general and having an opinion and having to be the first one to break the news, even if there's wrong news, they just want to be the first one to get it out there. You know, feeling, having really strong opinions about these young dudes that are trying to make it in life and maybe they make a mistake here and there and, and, and they're kind of being judged a little too harshly that way. Uh, guys thinking that they know that they, that they know more than the, the teams and the organizations that are doing all the grunt work and the groundwork and the film study and the traveling and all this other kind of stuff. And they get a big board on their 
booth on their you know on their set and they think like because they can break that down that they know it better than the, the people that are doing it day to day so that part of it is becoming a little bit annoying because i think that before it's a few people doing it and now it's just so saturated with so many people that are doing it that everyone's trying to be the voices heard so they say the most more most outlandish stuff or they have to yell the loudest or you know what have you but uh it's a necessary evil but it does get a little uh to me it kind of diminishes some of the the actual uh sacrifice that players have made because you like you said you know like they they'll say you know kind of diminish a person because he's a a later round draft pick or, or something like that or he went to a smaller school or you know what have you and it's like yeah but that dude was still like putting in the work and sacrificing and overcoming and, you know, surviving and all those kinds of things and plant and doing his job very well. And so I think sometimes with all the evaluation, it diminishes the the work that the, that the players have put in, even some of the, the top tier guys, you know, like they, they'll find a way to chop them off at the knees. But, um, but I, I like to try to celebrate the dudes and, uh, and sometimes, you know, I get to work with some of these college kids that are preparing for the NFL. Uh, and so I just try to, uh, help them, you know, improve on whatever it is that they're trying to improve on. I try to talk to them about the mindset, about the lifestyle, all that kind of stuff, because I just want to set the stage for wherever they get drafted, free agent, un, you know, undrafted player or not, uh, just to be to have a chance to be successful. Because I, if every single guy or or woman that wants to try could play in the NFL for one month, I would be like, man, let everybody do it. It is the coolest thing ever. And and so if if you get a chance to experience it. I just want you to have the best chance of being successful at it. That's great. That that's exactly like how it should be, really, shouldn't it? Yeah. Um, to go back down the memory lane, so you've just been drafted by the Seahawks, and what was the transition like going from college to Seattle? Because you were in Virginia, weren't you? Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Yeah. We had a we had a good team at UVA, and uh, I was fortunate enough to play practice every day against this guy named Chris Slade, who is uh, still has the record for sacks in ACC. Even though Florida, and Miami, and all those teams have come into the to the league into the league, and then he played with the Patriots for a long time as outside linebacker. So he was probably the best player I've ever went against in college, you know. And so uh, and so, but he was an NFL ready type dude. A lot of the guys I played against. We're good football players, but they weren't like, you know, NFL guys. And so when I got to the league, it was quite an adjustment. And most of it was not physical, but just like the mental part of it. And like, you know, you get there and you're not really used to guys beating you and stuff. You know, like in, in college, you're dominating everybody. And then you get into the league and it's like you forget that that dude over there was dominating everybody in college too. <laughs> you know, and so, <laughs> and so, you go, and so all of a sudden, like, I can remember, like, um, the very first practice I had with the Seahawks, I had to go against Rufus Porter, who at the time was, like, this undersized outside linebacker that was quick as all get out. And he was kind of like the pass rush specialist for the Seahawks. And so uh, I held out for two weeks just trying to get the contract all done. First day in pads, I had to go against this dude in one-on-one pass rush, like, eight times in a row. And I was just like, oh, my God, like, I never played against someone so quick and fast and so many different moves. And like he would do this little thing where he flinched and I kept jumping off sides. And it like, <laughs> and I was just like, oh man, like, you know, I, I was just, I was just out of sorts. And so that was my first kind of like, okay, like this is a different animal. Like this, <laughs> like these dudes are, these, these are really, really good. Even if I've never heard their name before, I had never heard of Rufus Porter before. 
And then all of a sudden in practice, he's over there. And I'm just like, holy crap, like this dude is this dude is good and quick. So then you get to the games and it's the same kind of thing. You know, you're just like you're playing against these dudes. You, you, you know, all the big names like Derek Thomas or Lawrence Taylor or, you know, names like that. And then all of a sudden you're playing against a guy like a uh, thing a dude from like uh, uh, L.A. Rams. His name was like Bill Williams or something like that. So, and I'm just like, I don't know, I've never even heard of this dude. And the first preseason game I played, and he was like giving me the business. And I'm just like, man, like, what's this dude? You know, like, where did he come from? You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, and so it, it just took some adjustment to just kind of get yourself mentally um, ready to deal with the fact that you're playing against the best of the best of the best of the best. And every now and again, they're going to they're going to win because they get paid, too. And they're also really good football players. And so it just took a little bit. It probably took me half the season to be able to to within a game have a bad play and then still remain confident in myself when I broke the huddle, which was something I never had to deal with, you know, in college. And so it took me a while to understand how to, you know, what to do and, and uh, how to give myself the self-talk to go like, okay, that was one play. We still got 60 something other plays to run. So get, you know, get out of your brain and get back into the game. And so uh, that took a, that took a little bit more of adjustment than I thought it would be uh, just because I just always figured myself to be a confident dude. But when you go in and you're so used to just winning every battle and then you're not winning every battle, it kind of chipped away at like my, at my confidence in myself at the time. Uh, but it just took me a, a while to figure out how to mentally get myself back into it uh, so that I can get back into a good rhythm. You must, uh, you must have, you must have uh, picked it up quite quickly because you only, if I'm writing what I've found online, you only, was it 11 games didn't start in your whole career? Yeah, yeah. I started every game as a Seahawk until I've started every game I could have in the league, uh, except for when I was hurt. So those the games I didn't start, I was injured, and uh, and so I, I I think I was the first Seahawk rookie, or maybe first Seahawk rookie offensive lineman to to start every single game, play every single play my rookie year. Like I didn't I didn't even lose for the first three years and fourteen games with the Seahawks. I never missed a game or a play. And so I played every play, every game. And uh, and so, and then week 14, we're playing the Houston Oilers at the time, and I dislocated my foot. And then that's, mm-hmm. that started, like, this streak of, like, every other year I'd miss two games here, full season, two games there, stuff like that. So, uh, but no, it was, uh, it was murderous road, too, like, my rookie year. Like, people don't understand, like, like the dudes I had to play against, like, uh, like, I, I show it to people all the time at sports. I think USA Today did an article about it, and it was called on-the-job training because uh, of the 16 games, and some of these dudes I had to play twice, like Derek Thomas and Leslie O'Neill, uh, the the guys I went against all averaged double-digit sacks for their careers, and they were all had been to at least one Pro Bowl. And so these are the dudes that I was – I wasn't getting help either. It's not like they were putting a tight end over there or putting a running back over there to help chip – it was like, nah, dude, like you're the first rounder. You got to go get them. And so, you know, I'm going against, you know, Derek Thomas and the all the guys that the Raiders had with uh, Greg Townsend and Howie Long, uh, you know, and Sean, uh, what's his name? Uh, Sean Green, I think his name was. But, uh, but you know, uh, Andre Tippett with the with the Patriots was a really good, you know, pass rusher. You know, Lawrence Taylor, I played against my, my rookie year. It was near the end of his career, but the dude still – beat me for a sack. <laughs> it's just like he was still, still a good football player. You know, so I, I played against some monsters, man. 
my my rookie year, and so it was either sink or swim. And so I was I was I was treading <laughs> water as hard as I could. Like I wasn't sinking for anybody, and so it just took me a minute to to kind of get get going. I'm guessing that rookie year, then, with you saying all that, I'm guessing that rookie year kind of cemented your whole career because it must have given you all the confidence in the world going into year two, year three. It's like, look what I did as a rookie, just being chucked in at the deep end. It must have just paved the way for the career you yeah. had. Well, that too. And uh, my rookie year, the, the offensive line coach was Hudson Houck. And Hudson had come to Seattle from the Rams, I think, where he had coach Jackie Slater, who's a Hall of Fame left tackle. And so Hudson really uh, compared me to him a lot. And so I was I was learning like how that dude's emphasis on his footwork and his hand placement and all that kind of stuff. So I, I tried to mimic some of the things he did. And then my second year, uh, Hudson left and went to the Cowboys. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then they won four Super Bowls or whatever. But um, and then we got this dude, Howard Mudd, who came from Kansas City. And Howard Mudd is a dude that truly taught me how to be a pro. Like he like during the off season between my rookie year and my second year, I had to go to the facility like every day, like just me and him out on the field by ourselves, and we would walk through plays like you know like we would go through like a whole game of plays up and down the field, and I have to do all the pass sets or the run takeoffs or all this other kind of stuff, and he really wanted me to just really lock in on like be a technician because I relied a lot on my athletic ability, and because uh, I always figured I always thought of myself as more athletic than normal dudes my size. And so he said, well, if you match that athleticism with then mastering the technique, then it just makes you all that much better. And so uh, so he kind of like really honed in and locked in on like completing the total package of who I was as a player. And then also just mentally teaching me just how to be a pro about it, how to go about your work, how to be dedicated to what you're doing, how to be focused on what you're doing, how to study film. Like that's one big thing too, like coming to the league, I didn't know how to study film. Like in college, it's like, oh, you're playing against this dude. Oh, I'm gonna kill him. No problem. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like, like you know, you're, so, so you're you're watching tape the same way you're watching the football game. You're just following the ball and going ooh and ah because you're looking at other stuff. And then you get to the league and you're just like, okay, like, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, what am I, how do what did, what does that mean to study film? And so you know, Howard sat down with me and told me like, how do you watch a player? Look at his you know where he's lined up. Look at it down the distance. What time was it in the game? How to figure out what his go-to move is? Like all the different kinds of things. And so he really, really made me a, a pro. And uh, and Howard Mudd is probably like one of my favorite people. You know, he passed away last year, but he's like one of my my favorite people of all time. The dude just has had such a huge impact on my life, just because of the way he coached me as a as a football player. Awesome. And like I say, I think you know, in the major, I think. We're so quick to write off these guys coming out of college as draft busts if they're not starting 16, 17 games as soon as they're drafted. They're not going for, you know, if they're a receiver, they're not getting 1,000 yard receiving yards. And it's, mm-hmm. it's there's so much more to coming into the NFL than just sort of lacing up your boots and, and putting on your pads and playing. It's like you say, it's the film studying. It's the, you know, the intrinsic training routines that are so much more advanced than at college level. It's there's so much more to just suiting up and playing with the NFL, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. And like, even like, you know, like, I don't even like calling the dudes a bus, even if they get to the league and they do absolutely zero, right? Because <laughs> the only, to, to me, the only way you can, you can even think to call someone as a bus is because you don't understand what it takes to get there, yeah. you know? So, so you may get there and it just works out that, you know what, like, it just for whatever reason, 
your confidence, your ability, your the system you're in, injuries, like all these different things can impact your ability to be uh, successful in the league. And so then, so then when people start saying like, oh, this dude was a bust and he's a bum or he's a like all this other, to me, that is coming from people that have no idea the sacrifice and the work and the hours you put in to get there. Because you you think about all of the football players in the entire country that are eligible to be drafted mm-hmm. and only like 300 of those dudes get drafted. And you think about all of the football players that are, that could be in the NFL and there's what 1800 players or something like that. There's only yeah. like 20,000 retired, retired NFL players. So there's yeah. not a whole lot of people. And so when you start talking about a dude as a bus because he got there and he didn't meet your expectations of what mm-hmm. you thought he was going to be, you just have no idea of what it takes to get there because you are that person is has become the best of the best of the best of the best at what he does. And so if he gets there and all of a sudden it doesn't work out for whatever reason, it just means that it didn't like if you go take a job and you get into that job for like six months and you decide like, man, this ain't for me. Like, this is not the best way for me to be productive. Are you a bust at that job? Or do you just feel like, man, like this is this is just not a good fit for me. It didn't work out for me or or this maybe this is not what you really want to do. So you change direction, you go a different direction. It's no different in the NFL. Guys get there and you realize like, man, like either your skill set doesn't quite fit. A lot of people don't understand culture and and staff and and system matter a lot. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Especially yeah. quarterbacks. You know, some guys get there and maybe they, their arm isn't quite strong enough or or maybe the, the defense has become a little bit too complex for them to read and, and, and it makes them a little bit slower, you know, doing what they do. Uh, but a lot of people don't understand, like, the coaching that you have, the system that they run, the culture that they that they that they create in the and the environment in their locker room and all that. All of that stuff matters. All that stuff contributes to the success, just like any other job you go to. You know, and uh, sometimes you can you can succeed in spite of, you know, all those things being bad. But man, that's really hard to do. You know what I'm saying? It's really hard to rise above that, you know. There's not a whole lot of really, really, really good football players that are like leading their teams to championships and stuff. And they have bad environment, bad system, bad coaches. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like all that stuff matters. And so, like I look at a guy like uh, uh, Darnold, the quarterback, yeah, that just went from the Jets to Carolina. Like this dude, there was no chance. You know, and like they went through what two or three coaches, two or three offensive coordinators. The environment there is bad. The the it's a tough city to play in anyway. Mm-hmm. All the pressure, all this other kind of un- unrealistic expectations, and no weapons. All this other kind of stuff. And then people say, oh, he's a bus. It's like, well, you have, he's, he's having been set up for success. How do you yeah. know? You yeah. know what I'm saying? And so I'm excited for him to go to Carolina. I think there's a, I don't know if he's going to be a Tom Brady type dude, but I think mm-hmm. that dude is a solid starter in the NFL if he's in the right system with the right coaching. And, uh, and, and people underestimate that part of the draft and where people go and what their ability to succeed is. Absolutely. Completely agree. Matt, do you want to go, mate? Yeah, so I've uh, I kept myself a little bit quiet sat over here. That's all right. I can sort of uh, relate to what you were saying about the uh, you know the difference in in playing college and playing in NFL in the NFL. Sorry, and in, in the sort of players that you come up against. Um, I mean, I I'm an offensive lineman at my university over here on the south coast, and you know I I I play a mix between left and right tackle, so just sort of when we needed really, um, and. I remember playing a couple of our games over here. You know, you come up against uni level, uh, I mean, 
you know the sport over here is is far far you know smaller than it is in America right. obviously um and the guys I came up against at, at defensive end you know they were good players don't don't get me wrong but when I went I went to a uh, an adult level or senior ball uh, training session with with the Portsmouth Dreadnoughts near us, and the fir- the first play I was in with them, I look up and the uh, the defensive end was our offensive coordinator uh, at university, and he is a big man. And <laughs> the first play, they were like, "Okay, we, you're going to drop into pass protection." I was like, "Okay, fine, simple stuff." Yeah, I end up flat on my back. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was just like, "Okay, okay, we need to uh, we need to get our head around here and uh, try and concentrate," but. Yeah, it, it was a tough, uh, tough situation that one uh, to be beat by someone so big on my first play. Um, so, one thing I'd like to know is obviously you spent your career with um, the Seahawks and also the Lions as well. Um, did you have any moment in sort of any of the games that you played in that really stood out to you the most? Like maybe it could have been a, a big win, or maybe even you know stopping one of the best defensive ends there is, or. Yeah a particular game or in something well, that's, like that. There's a, a few of them like in Seattle, because at the time we weren't very good at the, you know, my, like I said, my first year we were two and 14 and I think we went six and 10 and then we had two, eight and eight seasons. And then, uh, um, so we were still trying to scrap to kind of create like a, you know, some respect for ourselves. And so I think in, it was my second year, I think it was. Yeah. Cause it was Rick Myers first year at quarterback. And the Raiders had just always just kind of bullied the Seahawks. And I, I'm just not one to be bullied. It's just not, it's not who I am. It's just not how it was made up. And so I, early in, the, in that second season, we went to play the Raiders. And they were just been the same old Raiders, you know, cheap shots and stuff after the whistle and all this. And so <clears throat> Rick Meyer, every time he dropped back for a pass, Man, like they, they, all the DBs had their backs turned running with receivers. So he would just tuck the ball and run because it's just like, it's like a built in quarterback draw and we're killing them with it. And so we just kept, kept doing that. And I think it frustrated them. So one time, Winston Moss uh, was in on the tackle. He's a linebacker for the, for the Raiders, was in on the tackle with, with uh, a brick. And then I could see him. He was had Rick's face mask pulling it up, and he was just like, wop, wop, like hitting him in the pile. And the referee's standing right there, like marking the ball, not really paying attention to what's going on. And I was about 15 yards away. I just took off, and I just, boom, I just drilled Winston. And then <laughs> next thing I know, I, I got hit in the head by, like, another of one of their players. And so it ended up being this big, huge brawl. And, like, I took on, like, I was right on their sideline. I took on, like, all of them, every single one of them. <laughs> Like I was just like it ain't going it ain't going to go down like that today, and so I got kicked out of the game <laughs> in, the, in the second quarter. But I took two of them with me. I took I took Chester McClockton, who was their one of their best defensive tackles, and uh, one of their linebackers. Both got kicked out of the game too. Well, we ended up we ended up winning that game like forty two to ten or something like that. And so uh, uh, a lot of the players and a lot of the fans. You know, we're like, man, like, you know, finally someone is sticking up to the to the Raiders, and so it was a big deal for me. Like, I was there was a, a headline in the paper where I, they showed me grabbing some dude's face mask, and it said there's a new sheriff in town and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, I got fined, obviously, for getting kicked out of the game. Well, fans were sending me checks, like oh, like dollars yeah. here, twenty five dollars oh, there, like sending me money to to pay for the fine. Obviously I didn't take the money. I just autographed the check and sent it back to him. Wow. But uh but it was a, it was kind of a big deal. 
uh, Rick Myers, um, and so this is another story. The Rick Myers' wife, uh, because I'd stood up for his for her husband. When I got back, by the time I got back to Seattle, she had she knew I loved Oreo cookies. <laughs> she had made like this. She had made like this. It's called like a Mississippi mud pie. It's like Oreo cookies and uh, oh, chocolate yes. pudding and all kind of stuff. It was it was at my house when I got back home. And wow. so <laughs> I mentioned that to the media. And so then that took a life of its own. They were calling her trying to figure out what the recipe was and all this other kind of stuff. And so <laughs> I just remember that moment because it, to me it was like a it was like the Seahawks putting their foot down and saying like, you know what, like we may not be where we want to be yet, but we're building something. Some There's something coming, whether it's two years, three years down the road, but this, this pushing us around thing is not going to, it's not going to work anymore. So for, for the Seahawks, that was, that was kind of a, a pretty big moment uh, uh, for me in my career. Cause it just, to me, it just kind of meant more less of like, Hey, I'm this tough guy, but more of like, Hey man, we're the Seahawks and like, we're, we're not taking it anymore. Uh, so that that was kind of a really really cool moment, and obviously being drafted by the Seahawks was a big deal. Uh, and then when I was in Seattle, I mean in Detroit, obviously you know blocking with Barry Sanders. I mean uh, like, you know being on the line that rushed for two thousand yards and uh, all that stuff. And and people so people will say like, well OJ Simpson's two thousand yard season was more impressive because he did it in fourteen games. Well, <clears throat> in the first two games of that season, Barry only had fifty three yards. And so the offensive coordinator called us, like me, Herman Moore, like he called a dude from each position group on offense into a meeting and was like, hey, like, what do you guys think we should be doing on offense? And I was like, well, first of all, uh, I get paid to block. You get paid to call the plays. Like, that's above my pay grade. Like, that, you, you, that's not what I came here to do. But if you're going to ask me, I'm going to tell you to run Barry until his shoes fall off. Like, until they, <laughs> like, we need to have, like, a whole case of shoes on the sideline because he's going to blow out every single pair. That's how much we should give him the ball. And then we should just invest in a big oxygen truck so that he has some air. <laughs> with this and I'm like, other than that, do whatever you have to do. But just somehow Barry needs to be running the ball. And so uh, from that day forward, we rushed for 2,000 yards in 14 games. He finished with 2,053 yards. And we broke the record for 14 straight games, over 100 yards rushing. And, uh, and so it was just really cool to be – on the field for, you know, and Blocker, for, for, first of all, such a great dude. You know, he's not the, the big showboating. Not that I have any problem with the way dudes celebrate, but that just wasn't what Barry did, and he never felt the pressure to have to do it. He was just kind of who he was. He'd score a touchdown, hand the ball to the, the, the referee, and then run back to the sideline. And, uh, and so it's just really cool to be able to be part of that history uh, with him uh, was, was pretty incredible. Just Barry's just a great dude to be able to say, like, I'm one of only – you know, a handful of offensive linemen have ever blocked for a 2,000-yard rusher, you know, that kind of stuff, which then when Barry retired, it was a little bit frustrating because uh, <laughs> offensive linemen, you don't get a whole lot of, like, notches in your belt, right? So you don't have a whole lot of stats other than people want to say how many penalties you gave up or sacks or whatever. It's all negative stuff. And, uh, and so at the time, if Barry had come back to Detroit, <clears throat> we used, he needed about 1,400 yards to become the all-time leading rusher. And we normally had 1,400 yards like around Thanksgiving. And I would have been, I was the only lineman remaining from the line that blocked for him for 2,000 yards. So if he had stayed and gotten the, the Russian title, I would have been the only offensive lineman in NFL history wow. to have blocked for a 2,000-yard oh, rusher and the all-time leading rusher. So I was on the phone. <laughs> 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 Come on, Barry. Like, you can retire after Thanksgiving. Like, just... 
just but just come back. Like I just want to be able to, you know, like it was a total oh, selfish move that I was trying to do. Cause I just wanted to be able to say that, you know. And uh and so I was just trying to blow him up, like, come on, dude, like come back. Obviously, we need you to be a better team. But man, like this would be like a really cool thing to be able to say, you know what I'm saying? Be like that'd be a cool Jeopardy question, you know? And uh and uh and, but you know, obviously couldn't get him back, so didn't get to, to get to hold that title, but but uh, but no, I think you know, blocking for Barry just in general was just like a, a freaking blessing, dude. Like, people don't understand, like, they see him running around and, and they think, you know, obviously he has a bunch of natural ability, but they didn't see the behind the scene work that this, this dude put in, you know, like on Fridays, which is usually our easy day, you know, no, no pads and stuff like that. We kind of walk and through a whole lot of stuff. And then afterwards, you know, you go back to the locker room and maybe there's a special meal or massage therapist or whatever. And you look back and Barry is doing like sprints, like from the, from the not not just like the from end zone to end zone, from the back of the end zone to the back of the end zone. So, you know, he's running the entire length of the field, like doing sprints and stuff. And, you, and so then you walk off the field thinking like, man, like, should I? Should I go and get this massage or should I with Barry? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like you feel like this small, like walking off the field, because you're like, I can't wait to get this massage. And the dude that needs the massage the most is out there running the You know what I'm saying? Oh, like, so it's just like the dude is just an incredible guy to block for just in general. And uh and so so I would say as it relates to games or moments in my life, like the 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 I think the the fight with the Raiders was kind of pivotal just for the mentality of the Seahawks. And then obviously blocking for Barry and rushing for two thousand yards was pretty incredible. The the only other thing I will have though that my my legacy to the NFL is the coin toss, and so like you know playing in in Detroit, and we we're playing the Pittsburgh Steelers Thanksgiving went to overtime, flipped the coin. Jerome Bettis said, I think heads it was. They called it it landed heads. They told him he said tails. They gave us the ball. <laughs> we win the game. And so because of that. Uh, the whole way they do the coin toss change, right? So now you, they call it before they flip it. There's more than one. There's, the, there's more than one referee out there, like all that kind of stuff. And so when people ask me, like, you know, what was my legacy to the game? I go <laughs> coin toss. <laughs> wow, Jesus like, crazy. I bet after that fight with the Raiders, you were fighting every team every week, weren't you? Getting the free misses in oh, yeah. mud pie. Well, well, exactly. Like that, and and that's like uh, that was just part of who I was like I just I don't know I get like very uh, angry I guess if you want to call it that but I just yeah. it's, it's easy to kind of so when I was in Detroit I got kicked out of like enough games that one night I uh we were playing the, the uh Minnesota Vikings and Scott Mitchell threw an interception to end the game and and uh their defense line was taught like hey when the quarterback throws an interception go after the quarterback and so I'm like well I'm not having that and so I just started I think I hit John Randall with somebody, and I got a, I got a personal foul penalty for it. And with two seconds left in the game, I get kicked out of the game. Well, that's a fine. That's a fine for the NFL. So we fly back to Detroit, you know, get my bags, everything. I'm feeling upset that we lost the game and all this stuff. I'm not even thinking about the fight. Open the door, and my wife is five foot four. She opens the door as I'm opening the door, and she just points at me and goes. Stop taking them for the team. So, somebody else is going to start paying these fines. No more fight. And, so, and that was the last time I fought in the game. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Because <laughs> she, she was like, they're not taking money from us anymore because you're out there fighting somebody. Let let somebody else do the fighting. You've done it long enough. And so I was like, okay, yes, ma'am. Like, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> wow. 
Certainly. Matt, do you want to go on it? Yeah, I'm, I was just thinking, obviously, you said you, you got to play with Barry Sanders um, in Detroit. Um, just, you know, obviously, you get to play with a running back of, of such calibre as him. When you're in a game, I mean, this, this is what, you know, this is something I do when we're in a game, which probably isn't the best thing. And you hear, you know, you hear the quarterback call a pass play or a run play. Do, do, do you have like a pressure, like when you were playing, did you have a preference? Like if you think, if you hear the quarterback go, oh, you know, he calls a pass play, you're like, oh, great, it's a pass play. Or are you like, you know, he calls a run play. It's, oh, yes, we, you know, we should be right. You know, I, I love doing a run play. Do, do you, do you have any preference on, on what you prefer? Yeah. Blocking? So, uh, so we, we have this conversation obviously out here w- with Seattle this year that became a big deal, right? Because the whole yeah. let us cook thing and wanting to drop back and throw the ball 40 times a game. And, and then people are complaining that the offensive line, you know, is, is, you know, good enough or not good enough or what have you. And so this is where I, I always say that offensive line is like the most misunderstood position in all of sports. Because oh, yeah. people think it's just big dudes running against big dudes, and that's all it is to it. And, but there's so much uh, technique involved in it. There's so I mean, you're, you're trying to block maybe one of the best athletes on the field in pass protection as you're going backwards, and they're going yeah, forward at full speed. And you're and and so, you know so so but what I tell people is every offensive lineman at some point in their career also played defense, and there and the thing about football is the idea of just imposing your will on someone else physically, driving a dude into the dirt like just putting him on his back like I mean just just physically dominating another human being like there is something that just get the freaking fire in like I'm getting fired up saying it like this just it gets the it gets the fire and you so like that's what you remember from football it's physical you get to knock people down blah 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 tackling hit them hard like all that kind of stuff so I would prefer running the football because then you get to do that you get to smash dudes and impose your will on them and drive them into the dirt and physically dominate them and and uh, assert yourself over them like you steal their will you get them like if you're ever watching a game and you see a defensive guy going like this, that's him telling his team, like, man, I need to come out. Like, I'm either getting my ass kicked, I'm tired, or whatever it is. <laughs> but this is the sign for, like, so I always wanted to make, see if I can get a dude to do this, like in the run game, to tap out. And uh, and so you don't get to do that in the pass game. Like, you don't get to nah. be physical like that. And so the thing I always, so I'm always going to prefer running the football versus passing it. However, I know that passing is part of the game. So the way I look at it is, if you want to be a better passing team, then you should be a really good running team because it allows your offensive line to wear those dudes down and they have to earn the right to rush the quarterback. You know what I'm saying? So, like, there were times last year with the Seahawks where they didn't run the ball back-to-back uh, for the entire game. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, and, and so and so now you're thinking, like, well, why can't they protect Russell? Well, heck, like, they know it's going to be a pass every single time. So if I'm a defense, if I'm a defender – I know exactly where the offensive line is going to set. I know that it's going to be a drop back pass. I can just lock, pin my ears back and just rush the quarterback. I don't have to worry about you running a draw play, a screen play, a running play, or whatever. I'm just getting after the quarterback. It's really hard to pass protect in that situation. Even if you're one of the best linemen in the league, if you're going to just drop back and throw the ball 35, 40 times, and you're only going to run the ball 11 times, like you're not giving me an opportunity to impose my will on this dude. You're not giving me other tools in my belt where we can run play action or whatever. Because sometimes you wear these dudes down and their pass rush slows down, you know, because you're you're killing them in the in the okay. run game and stuff like that. And so I think people sometimes don't understand that part of it. 
like the mentality of an offensive lineman. And they're saying like, oh, man, you should be protecting Russell. Like, yeah, I want to protect Russell, but dang it, like I need I need to like use all of my ability and all the all the, the, the tools I have in my belt, too. And if you're going to just throw the ball, you know, 85 percent of the time, you're taking away tools that I can have in my belt to allow me to be a better offensive lineman that will then allow me to protect Russell better. So when they call pass plays, I'm all for it, you know, because not yeah. a lot of times you get big plays out of that. But like my heart, my heart gets pounding and my my energy gets unbelievably up when it's a run game because it's like I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure that this dude feels every bit of my person, like my my aggression, my weight, my strength, like everything, like like let's like that's an opportunity where you go back to like little league when you first started playing the sport and you played everywhere and you hit people, tackle people. You can feel the breath go out of when you hit them like that sound, like when you get a nice hit on them and stuff like that. Like you don't get that in pass protection, you know what I'm saying? But you get that in the run game. And so I'm going to prefer the run game every time to the pass game, even though I understand that, you know, throwing the ball is part of the game. I know, I know the feeling so well. I mean, you guys are getting me fired up, dude. Like I'm, like, really, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting fired. This stuff on right now. I'm just gonna walk down the street and I'm, I'm just gonna start hitting people and I'm gonna blame it on you guys. I'm like, you know what? Like, you got me talking about this stuff and I did, I had no outlet, but the pads were sitting there. So I'm just gonna put my pads on. The jersey's already on the shoulder pads. All I gotta do is put them on and slap my strap, my chin strap on, and I'm, I'm gonna go knock some people out in Seattle. <laughs> Just, I mean, just make sure you tell your wife that we're not paying the fine. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're around on Wednesday, we've got a training session. It's a bit of a fight away, but, you know, we could do with an extra lineman. <laughs> well, no, I know the feeling so well. I mean, only yesterday, you know, you know, over in, with with the rules we've got from um, BAFA, the British American Football Association, um, we're only allowed to do like two v one contact at the minute, which is a bit. Mm. It's better than nothing, and. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we did, I did two reps and yeah, we were sort of rotating every two or three reps and um, the the backup, well, the, the other guard, a uh, guy called Tom, he, um, they, they called a run play and I was like, oh yeah, he's going to get a pan- pancake block here. And yeah. lo and behold, he's on the floor, he's swimming on top of the guy and everyone's <laughs> going mental. And then, you know, a couple, couple plays later, I come in and they go, oh yeah, we're going to call like three pass plays here. I'm just like... What? I don't get a chance to get pancake on anyone. And I just, I dropped back. I managed to get the guy on the floor. I was like, oh, happy days, you know. And I was, yeah. you know, I was all over it. I was, I was so gassed. And then no one bat an eyelid because it was a pass play. I was just like, yeah. I took. Well, that. you know, if you if you even watch like the Seahawks offensive line, like just watch after plays. Like watch their you know, after you if they run. Like, let's say they're on like the twenty five yard line and they make a big block and they run for a touchdown. Watch how much they celebrate. Like when it, when it's a running touchdown versus oh. when it's passing touchdown. It's not that they're disappointed that it's a touchdown when it's a pass. It's just that when you run the football and you get to just you're pounding teams and you're just driving guys into the dirt and then you score. Like the celebration with the off with the running back is so different than when you celebrate with you know, you know DK catching a, a bomb for fifty yards. Because yeah. I promise you, like if DK catches a pass for like sixty yard touchdown. I am not sprinting to the end zone. So <laughs> no. That's just too much energy. <laughs> I'm going to the sideline. I'll get him when he gets to the sideline. Chris <laughs> Carson ran a 60-yard touchdown. Oh, I'm running behind Chris. Like I, because I want to be there. You know what I'm saying? But uh, so it, it matters. There was there were times during the season last year. Obviously, been in the stadiums where you know where there's no fans and stuff like that. You can see and hear everything. And so there were times where it'd be like third and 
two or three or whatever, and, and the Seahawks would, you know, attempt to pass, and it was incomplete. You don't get the first down. And, you know, Dwayne Brown would, would be very, you know, frustrated with that. Like, he wants to run the football to get those two or three yards. He wants to be able to use his, you know, his skill to dominate someone in that in that situation to get the first down because he understands how that takes the, takes the energy out of teams. Like, the dudes that really like to rush the quarterback, they don't like defending the run. Like, you have some dudes that are good at, like, Jadavion Clowney is great at defending the run, and he can also give you some pass rush. Frank Clark can be kind of that way. But uh, but as it relates to just a pure pass rusher that likes to defend the run, that's not a whole lot of them. Because when it gets noisy like that, they're 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 like, hey, like I need some water. You know what I'm saying? And so um, uh, so running the ball is a big piece of developing your offensive line and improving your pass protection. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, definitely. And um, like I say, we've, we've you've touched on a few of them um, in terms of, of who's been the most influential kind of guys in your career so far. But were there any sort of players and coaches that you learned the most from during your career, or any sort of teammates you had that you felt were sort of underappreciated by the media and by the fans and sort of external sources? Yeah, I would I would say like honestly, like this dude Howard Mudd was like a. I would hate saying like a dad because I had a dad, so I didn't need someone to be a dad. But he was like that. He was like a father type figure to me. Like our, not a whole lot of times do you get into like these really personal relationships with the guys that coach you because you know that they may have to be the dude that benches you or cuts you or whatever, and so that makes it kind of awkward. But Howard and I became like unbelievably great friends. Like just mm-hmm. away from football, like I would go to his house and like and go to dinner, hang out with his. He had a, a son that was about. 13, 14, 15, I'd hang out with his son. I would take the, the kid to dinner. Like I would, if the kid wanted me to come to his school and kind of do the the whole, I know a Seahawk thing, I would do that, like all kinds of stuff. And uh, uh, I would pay him to wash my car, like all kinds of stuff. So we just, we just created like a really deep, deep relationship to where even before I retired, Howard was the first person I called. It was in the middle of the night. I was with Detroit and he was coaching with the Colts. And I called him at like three o'clock in the morning. I was just like, dude, I think I'm shutting it down. And like, and he's he knew me so well that he knew if I was just BSing myself or if if he could he could tell if this is something real that I was that mm. I should probably act upon. And so, uh, so Howard just had a tremendous impact on my life, just because there were so many lessons that he taught around how to go about being a pro that you can apply to your life to be a good person, to be a good husband, to be a good friend, to be a good son, a good citizen of the world. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so there's a, so much about, uh, how I go about my life and how I go about, uh, my work and just being who I am that I learned from Howard Mudd that goes beyond football. Um, and so, so yeah, that dude was in, was impressive. Uh, there's the one dude that I played with, in Detroit, to me, that is, I hope one day he, he, I don't know if he'll have enough Pro Bowls and stuff like that to get to the Hall of Fame, <clears throat> but this guy, Kevin Glover, who was a center in Detroit, uh, mm. was just a pro's pro, and just, dude, just showed up every day, played, wasn't the biggest, strongest, fastest dude, was a very good offensive lineman, but because, you know, you played most of your career in Detroit, where Detroit wasn't, like, winning Super Bowls and things like that, and everyone thought that, Barry gained all his yards by himself, and if he had played behind the Cowboys' offensive line, it would have been this, that, nothing. Like, it's like, no, he wouldn't, because Barry would have been Barry. Like, Barry's going to cut back, stop, you know, <laughs> stop in the hole, go to whatever hole he wants to go to. He's going to do that no matter who's in front of him. And uh, But Kevin Glover is, is a dude, I think, that in my career is a very uh, underestimated 
football player as it relates to just like where he sits in the in the rankings of of good football players. And then even you know like uh, he's a kind of a forgotten guy sometimes with the Seahawks. It's a uh, Chris Warren, the running mm-hmm. back. You know, he, Chris Warren. When we're in the AFC West, I think he led the AFC West like twice in and you know total rushing yards. Yeah. He went to the Pro Bowl and like all this stuff. And he was a big back. You know, six two, six three, two hundred thirty five pounds. Could run really fast, run with power, all that kind of stuff. And uh, but then when Coach Erickson's crew came, um, they kind of took him out of the. I don't think they knew how to use him in the passing game because they wanted to throw the ball more. But the dude had probably some of the best hands on the team, but they didn't know how to use him in the, in the passing game that way. And then they'd only give him like 18 or 19 carries. And that he's one of the dudes that kind of picked up steam after 18 or 19 carries when people get tired of hitting this, you know, this big, huge dude that's coming through the hole. And, uh, and so I think it made him kind of fade off in a way that people kind of forgot about him. But, uh, but Chris Warren was a very uh, elite level running back in this, in this league and for the Seahawks. Absolutely. Pez, do you want to go, Matt? I think you're on mute there, homie. Yeah, I was. Yes. <laughs> um, you touched on Barry Sanders before. Um, well, I was just wondering, what was it like playing with uh, Cortez Kenny and Barry Sanders? And what were they like off the field? So yeah. not what everyone saw in the camera. Well, you know how big Cortez was, right? Just physically, his personality was bigger. The dude was just like, just... Uh, I don't know if he's ever had a bad day, you know, like, like you just never saw him having a bad day, period. Like whether it was on the field, off the field, always happy, always smiling, always joking. Well, never was a dude that like um, thought of himself bigger or, you know, better than, you know, above anybody else. Like he, everybody that came on the team, whether you're uh, one of the top players or one of the, the, the guys that just run down on the kickoffs, like you're part of Cortez's, you know, part of who Cortez was every Thursday night he would have these, uh, or Tuesday night he would have these big uh, parties or food or whatever at his house. So the, the entire team would be invited. Wow. So we'd have food and like playing games and all kinds of stuff. And that's just how Cortez was. And he was the same way uh, on the field. Now on the in practice, um, sometimes it's amazing to me uh, just how good he was because sometimes. They he would have to not practice because he was wow. so disruptive that you couldn't <laughs> that nobody else could get a look. You know what I'm saying? So like if you're in a scout team offense going against the first team defense and Cortez is blowing the play up before it gets started, well now the the DBs aren't getting a good look, the linebackers aren't getting a good look. You know what I'm saying? Like the other defensive linemen aren't getting a good look. So they'd be like, all right, Cortez, like you got to step out of you got to step out like like so we can get a look and see what's what this really looks like. You know so. That's how dominant this dude was, and uh, just great dude all around. And so the year that he ended up was the MVP. And you know this dude is a, a defensive tackle playing a lot over the centers and guards, getting double teamed a ton. And this dude still ended up with like you know 14 sacks and all the tackles for losses and all the pressures and all this other kind of stuff. And he was the only guy we had up front at the time, like yeah. Michael Sinclair and. And Michael McCray and those guys hadn't really developed who they were at that point. And so it was easy to just be like, we're going to man up everybody and just make sure Cortez doesn't beat us. And Cortez would still, you know, beat him. And, like, I think that year, uh, 
our defense was like one of the top 10 defenses in the league, and our offense was absolutely the worst offensively. So, <laughs> so we, were putting them, we were putting them in a lot of situations where they had opportunities to, to just beat up on Cortez, but he was up for the challenge every time and uh, just worked really, really hard. Like, you know, don't, don't let his body shape uh, make you think that he was a dude that was out of shape or anything like that. That's just how he was built. But Duke, could, he could go, never saw him tired. Can just go and 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 go, and he's talking the whole entire time, and uh, and so it's uh so that that about Cortez was just was just incredible, and honestly, like when he passed away, <clears throat> that was one of the things that kind of you know sparked me to uh, get myself you know healthy because I know that Cortez was working on that type of stuff, you know, like losing weight and being in shape, and he was you know raising his daughter you know by himself and all this other kind of stuff, been a great husband and all that kind of stuff. And so then at the time he passed away, uh, shoot, I was probably like, I think he had lost weight down to like maybe like 270 or something or another. He wow. played 300 pounds. And at the time I was about 335 pounds. And so I was just like, you know what? Like I need to get myself in shape. Cause I don't, I didn't know at the time why he passed. I just mm -hmm. wanted to make sure that my body was. And so like today I'm about 275 or 280. And I, wow. and I left the league at about 335. And uh, but it was all sparked because of Cortez, you know, and uh, just wanted to wanted to, you know, not take his life lightly or for granted. So that was the way I felt like I could honor Cortez is by getting myself in shape and stuff like that. And then as it relates to Barry, man, Barry's just like a Barry's just a pro's pro, man. Like he didn't complain. He's not like, you know, you would never hear him doing, you know, what these quarterbacks and stuff are doing now. Not that I you know, doubt him, but to be saying that you know, you're going to leave or whatever if you don't get this, that, or the other thing, like making demands. I think there is a space for some of that. I don't know if you do that publicly, but uh, but I could, I know there's a space for that, but Barry would never do that, even though he had every right to go to the team and say, hey, like, we need a better this or a better that, or why aren't we doing this, that, and nothing. He would just never do that. And so I, I think instead of doing that, he walked away from the, walked away from the game. He wasn't enjoying it, wasn't, you know, getting – the, out of it, what I, what he thought he's probably putting into it, but uh, I think you know if he had done some of the stuff like, you know, in his way, the way players are doing now, and just going and saying like, hey man, like why do we keep rotating these players, and you know, we signed a linebacker this year and then cut him next year and get a new linebacker or quarterback or run, like whatever it is, this felt like we was on this treadmill and not really going anywhere, uh, you know. But Barry just said, hey, I signed up to be the running back. I'm going to come be the running back. And that's and that's all he did. And so there's a lot of respect I have for him for that. You know, and he could have easily been the dude. Nobody would have complained if he had said, like, hey, like, we need a new such and such or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is, because he never said anything. And so you knew when he said something that it's going to be something that he had thought about that it was important for us to hear uh, or he wouldn't say it. And so just just a great dude all around. Make it would would have made it hard it makes it hard to block for another running back after blocking for him just because of the, the grace and, and humility that he did it. But also just the dude was just in, I mean, just watching him run the football is just incredible. Like it did. I mean, it's just spectacular. You couldn't wait to get to the film sessions on Mondays just so you can see, because you know, when you're blocking, you can't always see everything, but you can hear the fans on on and yelling. And then you look up and you just see number 20, you know, the last name running down the field. You don't know exactly how he got to that clearing. And all of a sudden, you get to watch the film. You're like, oh, my gosh. Like, I thought I was killing this dude. And Barry set me up really nicely. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like Barry set that block up for me. I thought it was just all me. But, you know, Barry's behind juking and jiving and stuff. And, 
you know, and uh, but uh, but no, he Barry's Barry's a just a tremendous dude, tremendous individual. Yeah, that's uh, it's hearing that it's like it just shows the in the NFL like how the team bonding happens. Like you know, with Cortez dying, and then you're just like, well, I need to get myself sorted, and it just it must just stay with you that whole you know team relationship, team bonding, unity kind of vibe. Just yeah. hearing you say them things, it's impressive. Well, I mean, when you think about it, like, uh, I would say back then it was a little bit easier, even though it still happens now, because nowadays with all the social media and stuff like that, it's really easy for dudes to get wrapped up into themselves. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, but, you know, everybody has their social media thing. Everyone has their, their foundation. Everybody has their thing that they're doing. And, and a lot of attention becomes on them, you know, personally, just, you know, a, not selfish is not maybe the right word to say, but it becomes individualized. Uh, when, you know, back then we didn't have all that stuff. And so you just had the dudes in the locker room. So if you're going through stuff, you, you're talking with the guys in the locker room. If the team is struggling, it's not like you you have to look at Twitter and see everybody doing it and each individual's arguing with everybody or all these, all these talking heads now that are on ESPN and all these sport things where they have to scream the loudest and, feel like they need to call people out and all that kind of stuff like those things weren't going on and so there's a better greater chance that your team was going to have a bond and i will tell you that out of every team i've ever been on college or pro the year that we were 2014 with the seahawks is one of the tightest teams i've ever been on in my life because the defense had like i said they were one of the top 10 defenses they had every right every time we came off the field to be like rah, 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 you know, just screaming at us, you know, but they didn't. They just like, hey, hey, we're going to get the ball back to you. We're going to get the ball back to you. Like, we're, we'll get it back. We'll get it back. Just keep fighting. Keep fighting. And mind you, we only averaged like eight points a game that entire season. I think we got shut out like three or four times. Like, it was, it was, we set the record for the most punts in a season. Like, that kind of <laughs> stuff. Like, that's how bad we were. Like, you know what I'm saying? Our defense only allowed like 16 points a game or something like that. If we had, if we had just doubled the number of points we scored per game, we probably would have been deep into the playoffs. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Wow. We just doubled our eight points. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> we would have, would have been into, into the playoffs. And so they had, you know, they could have been just smashing us and talking trash to us all the time. But they were always encouraging and supporting and, like, just, hey, and maybe they, I'm sure there was some frustration, but they never, it, they never, like, that never poured out into our locker room or into our relationships with them or into our team, you know, culture that we had. And, uh, and so you do tend to find these bonds with, like, you know, you may maybe not every guy on the roster, but you do find these like lifelong bonds that you have. There was a guy named Mike Compton that was my left guard in Detroit, and um, when I first got there, couldn't stand him at all. Like just didn't feel like we had anything in common. He was West Virginia dude, probably hadn't been around a whole lot of African American people and stuff like that. I just didn't feel like we vibed at all. But then after playing together and getting to know each other, if if today if they was if they said Ray, we're gonna put you in the foxhole. And you gotta find someone to be in a foxhole with you. I'm calling Mike. You know what I'm saying? Like that's that's my guy. Like you're like like they they started calling us Batman and Robin because everywhere I went, he was there. Everywhere he went, I was there. And uh, and that's just how we that's just how we were. Like he just he always had my back. Always had his back. We we competed hard. Uh, he ended up going to the Patriots. He was a free agent. This is a funny story. He's a free agent, and uh, I had already retired. And he called me and said, Ray, like I'm not getting any interest. As a free agent, I'm like, well, who, who's like, you know, looking at you? He goes, only two teams, Carolina and New England. And at the time, New England wasn't who they are, who they yeah. became. They were just a middle of the road team. 
And and so uh, I said, well, this is what I would do. I would take like a, a three-year deal. Whichever team would give you a three-year deal. You're a young dude. You can get three years, and then you can get back onto the market, get your big payday. Well, New England was the only team. It was the team that would give him a three-year deal. He won two Super Bowls in three years. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, Mike, one of those oh, is mine. Like, I, I, <laughs> like I, I gave you the advice, bro. Like, so I, I have to get at least one, half of one. Like, can I just get the – you can keep all the diamond part. Just cut off the bottom part for me. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I got to get a piece of that. Where's somehow. my check? Where's my check? Where's my advisory <laughs> check? Right? And so I was actually – I had told him if they made the playoffs, I would come to a game. And so I was actually sitting in the stands with his mom and his sister and his son uh, in the Raider game, the whole tuck rule. I was sitting right on the 20-yard line when it happened, snowing just all over the place. And uh, um, his parents, his mom and his sister had said they were going to go into this player lounge. It was cold. It's all get out. And it's, and I'm like, yeah, let's go in. His son, Josh, I'm like, yeah, let's go in here and watch because it's cold. And I'm going to sit in the snow. And then Josh was like, no, Batman, let's watch Robin. I want to stay and watch Robin. And so I'm just like, okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> freezing out. your butt off like all oh right. my god yeah. like I, and i didn't move i just snow like piled up there and we watched <laughs> we, we watched the whole game you know and so so i was there for that tuck rule game and met tom brady after the game and all that kind of stuff at the time i was doing sports radio for a different sports station here in seattle and they sent me to uh jacksonville to cover the super bowl when they played the uh the uh philadelphia eagles and that's when before Tom Brady was Tom Brady. And, and so, like, I was hanging out with Tom and Mike and all these different kinds of things. And so uh, Mike uh, is is one of my lifelong diehards, like, ride or die dudes from my football career. And, uh, and like, even now, like, when we text each other, we'll just text the Batman signal. And that means, like, hey, like, we need to talk. <laughs> no, and so we, we catch up like that. And uh, But, yeah, you, you end up having these these relationships that, that can last for a long time. Cause you've been through a lot together. You know what I'm saying? You've been through a lot and you get to know each other's families and their kids and all this other kind of stuff. And so there, there are certain guys that you end up uh, just having these really long lasting relationships with. Yeah. Just uh, cause what you were saying, then it's kind of relatable to this off season, isn't it? With the whole Russell Wilson saga. And from my understanding, from what we see over here is he went on a talk show and said, "I'm sick of getting hit." Now, you're you're an offensive line guy, so it'd be interesting to just see your point on this. Is from my understanding, he just said, "I'm sick of getting hit," and the media just went, "If I was the offensive line, I'd be going around to his house and I'd be doing this." And I was just like, "One minute, the guy's just literally said, um, he got asked a question about being hit, and now he just said, "Yes, I'm sick of getting hit.'" Is that a diss on the old line? Do you see that as a diss on the old line, or? Yeah, it, it was a it was a little bit more than just uh, I'm sick of getting hit. You know, it was it was it to me it wasn't nothing. First of all, nothing he said was false, right? Nothing he said is something that should not have been said. The problem is that it didn't need to be said on red on the radio to everybody. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's that's a conversation you have with the team in the locker room, you know, with the offensive line, with the whatever. And so, so when he's when he's talking about uh, not being hit and we, they, we need to improve, you know, protection and stuff like that, you're basically saying the, the offensive lineman ain't getting it done, you know, and you're and you're telling everybody, and which you know there there's evidence that you know he get he get he gets hit so he get hit hit a lot, you know what I'm saying? And so then the problem becomes that came to me was two things. 
One was uh, when he then said, um, well, I know that I hold on the ball too long sometimes and that and I get hit because of that. However, when I do it, I end up making big plays. So you diminish your role in it, but you exaggerate everybody else's role in you getting hit. And every time you held on to the ball, it wasn't a big play. Like sometimes it became interception. So sometimes it became oh. sacks that we didn't need to take. You know, we lost, you know, 25, 30, you know, 10, 15 yards because you decided to run around and all this other kind of stuff. And even in those moments where you hold on to the ball and you run around, the guys are still blocking. So now you're not even giving them credit for the blocking they're doing as you're running around, like stuff like that. And so to me, that was just a, that was a little much. And then, uh, and then the second part that just didn't sit well with me was when he started talking about his legacy. You know, and he's saying like, you know, like, well, you know, I just, my legacy is important and this, that, nothing. It's like nobody talks about their legacy during their career. Like you let other people talk about your legacy. And that's that came across as really selfish to me because I'm thinking to myself, like, uh, you do know that those dudes up front, they have legacies, too. You know, what I'm saying? and they get hit every single play, you know, and, and they're the most likely ones to have the issues with CTE and stuff after after their careers you know because it's, it's, a, it's all those little hits that 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 pile up that makes cte more dangerous than just having one big huge concussion and so like to me that was a very selfish uh way to answer the question and and russell is a more diplomatic dude in his press conferences and things like that so then it made me feel like it was something like very intentional that he was trying to say so i'm one of those media dudes that got really upset with it and uh as an offensive lineman I would have I would have wanted to have a talk with Russell, uh, even though I don't disagree with what he was saying. Like they need to improve, they need to improve their pass protection. Now, how they improve it is where maybe we disagree because some people started thinking that now we have to have five All Pro offensive linemen. It's like nah, like that's not it. If you look at all year long, I kept saying even when we're six and zero, throwing the ball all over the place. I'm like man, like at some point they need to marry the running game to this passing game because it ain't gonna go like this all year. And then you're going to have to rely on the running game. Well, they weren't running the ball. Then all of a sudden, defenses started playing two high safeties so the DK can't get be- uh, beneath them, I mean, beyond them. And then now you have to rely on the short game, which they hadn't developed, or you have to run- rely on the running game, which they hadn't developed. And so and so then when you start thinking about even going all the way back to our when we first started this conversation, the things that helped develop an offensive line is all of it. Like being able to throw the ball, being able to run the ball, all those things are tools in your belt that developed an offensive line and allowed them to be efficient at pass protection. You know what I'm saying? So like one example I gave is if you're going to throw the ball, you know, you want Russell to throw the ball 35 times a game, you know? Okay. Well then a third of those passes should be quick passes, like three steps, get the ball out, you know, like get the ball out, Russell. You don't on these plays, you don't get to be Mr. Creative dude and hold on and scramble and run around because we're asking offensive line to be super aggressive in their sets and they're expecting the ball to come out in three steps. So if you hold the ball, you know, three or four seconds and you're trying to double clutch and all that stuff, you're probably going to get your teeth knocked out. You know what I'm saying? So so probably, you know, a third of those plays are three-step drops. And then another third of those plays are going to be um, uh, like your uh, play-action pass, screens, little swing routes to the – to the running back out of the backfield, like plays like that where you're kind of moving the pocket a little bit or you're giving them, you know, the defense a different angle to rush. And then the last third of those plays is going to be a combination of like five-step drops where you're trying to drive the ball down the field, seven-step drops where you're trying to get the ball down the field, your longer play-action passes, 
where you're trying to get the ball down the field. So now, as an offensive lineman, just in pass protection alone, I have that's three or four different types of sets I can use. So I can set short, I can set deep, I can set in between, I can be more aggressive, all these different things. So now the defensive line is having to think about like, oh man, like is this a run? Oh no, it's a pass. Like and so now you slow down. I have a time to get my hands on them. Pass protection. That all of that improves pass protection, without having to have all pro offensive linemen. You know what I'm saying? But it, you just gave them tools in their belt just by how you're calling passing plays. Now you put on top of that, we're going to run the ball about 20, 20, 24 times a game. Now I'm getting to run the ball. I'm pounding them in the run game. I'm getting enough reps where I'm, I'm you know, Chris Carson is you know, running hard as all get out. And now when I do the play action pass and they think it's a run, they're chasing Chris. You know what I'm saying? And now, now you're running a run play and they're thinking like, is this the play action pass? And now they're standing up to rush the quarterback and you're driving them down the field and you're running the ball. So all of that stuff contributes to better pass protection of Russell Wilson. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's not just going out and finding five all pro offensive linemen. If you look at the top lines in the league, not they usually have maybe maybe two all pro type linemen. Most of them most of them just have one and then a bunch of other good dudes, but then they have a good play calling and scheme that supports, you know, protection and stuff like that. So that's that's kind of where I kind of butted heads with, with with what Russell said and how he went about it and how as an offensive lineman I would have responded uh to it. Uh and I would have, you know, offensive linemen are not public dudes like that. So offensive linemen aren't going to like come back to the media and, and go at Russell like that. They're not going to tweet about it and all that kind of stuff. We're just very private type dudes who take pride in what we do. But uh, I would imagine that there had to be a conversation with at least Dwayne Brown. You know what I'm saying? And, and yeah. just, oh, yeah. just oh, saying yeah, like, man. just saying like, hey man, like this is kind of what I was thinking and what I was trying to say. You know, da 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 da. Because there's nothing, like I said, nothing he said was false. It's just that he, just the way he said it, and then the platform at which he answered it, and then uh, uh, and then all of a sudden you have all of his Russell's camp speaking for him. I don't like that that part yeah. either. Like if you have something to say, man, just man up and say it. Like don't have your attorney saying it and all the little hang around people that you have in your circle speaking for you and stuff like that. Like that's not who I am. Like you know, my word is my word. I don't need anybody else to say it for me. And so just you know, he should have just. Kind of, he could have put a lot of that to sleep by just coming out and clarifying, or just you know, saying that he wanted to be here. Like even all that trade talk stuff and the teams I want to go to, or all that kind of stuff. And even the teams he picked didn't even make sense. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> Chicago and Dallas and like in Oakland. What? Like like the, there? Do you think those franchises are in better shape than the Seahawks? Like come no. on, bro. Like like what is happening here? You know what I'm saying? So yeah. So so the media. Um may have played a role in, in blowing it up a little bit, but Russell played the biggest role uh, because it, he just should have, he could have answered it a totally different way uh, and not really made it seem or appear that he was being really selfish in his answer. Mm, very interesting. Matt, do you want to go ahead? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I can echo exactly what you were saying about, uh, you know, changing, um, you know, you, you blocking schemes and talking about, different ways you can play I mean again I know it's a completely different level but we can echo that you know with our team like last year um well, I say last year last season um you know we played six games we got shut out three times and the what was it one game we lost by one score which was a dodgy refing decision but I won't <laughs> I won't rush up we won't go over that one now um but you know in, in the off season we yeah we all sat together and we've completely changed this blocking scheme that we're doing and everyone 
you know it's so simple everyone can just can get mm-hmm. it we've you know in the trade limited training sessions we've had we've completely transformed the offensive line you know we've got the same exactly the same group of people and you know we're running running like a well-oiled machine at the minute um which is nice um, yeah it's very nice compared to last year um but yeah it's just it's i find that interesting it's something that can you know it's something that's relatable to all levels of the game like regardless mm. if you're playing you know at, at the top level or if you're you know playing for a university over here in in the lowest division of of the sport which is what i'm doing but <laughs> you know it's just it's it's interesting to see the carryover between the two different levels of the game i think yeah, well, at the end of the day, it's football, right? It's oh yeah, the same, sure. It's, same, it's no the same game to it. that 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 I've played when I was freaking seven or eight years old. <laughs> you know, saying like the the, yeah. the 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 we're running to the right, running to the left, running it up the middle, or we're throwing it. We're blocking, we're tackling, we're catching. You're throwing. Like it's like it so, hasn't yeah. really. It's the same game. You know what I'm saying? So so now yeah. all of a sudden people just want to throw the ball more. The game hasn't changed. It's still football. You know what I'm saying? It's just that you're just throwing the ball more you know what i'm saying so like you can have the same you know uh like even this cliff kingsbury dude that's in arizona and people are saying like oh well, his offense is too simple and now the nfl will catch up to it and all that kind of stuff it's like well anytime a team struggles with what they're doing people are going to say that you know so like, you can have off of the corners have been in nfl for 50 years yeah. And then all of a sudden their offense isn't working, and it's like, oh well, the defense is caught up to this, and da 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 da. It's like, no man, it, this stuff goes in cycles. There's times when the offense te- seems to have, you know, m- you know, some some good success based on players or scheme or how they're you know running routes or whatever it is, and then there's times when the defense tends to have the upper hand because they've kind of figured some things out or they they have better players you know, playing positions, you know, like they have better athletes at linebacker than they've ever had before in the history of the game. You know what I'm saying? They have bigger defensive backs than they've ever had yeah. in the in the history of the game. So so it kind of changes, you know, some of the success of the offense. You know, guys are just faster and bigger and stronger in general. And so the game is not a super complex game to play. Nah. We make it that way uh, because we, you know, we, we – say that a player has to do a certain thing or an offense has to run a certain way or, you know, for, for Russ to be, you know, all the Russ, now we have to throw the ball, you know, 40, 50 times a game, which, you know, may or may not be in the best interest of the success of their world team. Because if you think about even that concept and how this team has always been constructed, it's been a very, um, people will say, you know, defensive, defensive and defense and rushing team. And that is, a lot because you're controlling the clock and you're controlling the field position. And so if you can, if you can get your control the clock and, and score and running the ball uh, and throwing the ball, now your defense is rested. If the defense can play where they can get themselves off the field and give you short fields to score with, like uh, then they're also rest. They can play at a top peak, you know, at the peak of what they do, create turnovers, all that kind of stuff. So when you start talking about let's throw the ball like 35, 40 times, that kind of messes up that whole formula, right? Cause it's going to be a lot of three yeah, and outs. Sure when you're throwing the ball, you know, and then defense is right back on the field. So let's say the defense just gave up a long drive, kicked the ball off, you go three and out because you throw the ball three straight times, they're right back on the field, and the other team has field position. So it impacts, like, so when people think about, you know, Russell Wilson and throwing the ball and all that kind of stuff, a lot of, most folks aren't putting it into the perspective of the entire team. And I'm not saying just the entire offense. I'm talking about the entire team, like the the special teams, the offense, and the defense. That's why the, the punter is such a weapon. 
because he can pin, he can totally flip the field position. You know what I'm saying? Right. And then that becomes an advantage for the defense. So if the offense only has to go 50 yards for a first down, up for a touchdown, versus 70 or 80 yards for a touchdown, that's a huge difference. Like, it's a lot of opportunities to create turnovers. There's a lot of opportunities for them to mess up. There's a lot of opportunities for the defense to to make a stop and then flip the field position. So like it all, none of those three things work in a vacuum all you know, to themselves. They are all interconnected. And so when people are just focused on one aspect of it and saying that you should change it how you do it without looking at it in the perspective of the whole entire team, then I think that's where a lot of people fall short when they think about how teams are built and how they're put together. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I completely agree with everything you've just said there. Um, I mean, you've sort of led on quite well to the uh, the next thing I was going to ask as well, which is sort of over the last what, 20, 25 years, I mean, you've seen a lot come and go in the NFL. And I was just wondering on in your opinion on how, on how the game's changed over the years in terms of, you know, how the play, you know, players have changed. I mean, you know, it's the same thing. You throw the ball, as you yeah. said, you throw the ball, you run the ball. Um, but in terms of, you know, they brought obviously there's loads of rule changes over the years, you know, player safety stuff mm-hmm. as well. It's just, you know, well, uh, there's, a, there's, a a few different, there's a few different things. The the biggest change has been just the <laughs> these dudes that are just coming into the league are just yeah, incredibly athletic and big and fast. Like, you know, when I went to the combines, I was 302 pounds. And I think I ran like a four nine five oh forty or something like that. And now dudes that are three hundred and forty some pounds are running like four sixes and like four seven. They're running like I couldn't do that. Like the top times for the tight ends. You know what I'm saying? And 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 now you have these these more of these power forward type tight ends that are coming into the league that have great hands, great speed, great size. Uh, hard to tackle, tough matchups, stuff like that. Uh, you you know, you look at the like we we're just talking about the linebackers are just a little bit, maybe not as big as they used to be, but unbelievably athletic and fast. The deep, the secondary is bigger. All those kind of things. Like you look at a guy like DK Metcalf, like it's like yeah. wow. You know what I'm saying? Like, like like those types of dudes are coming to the league. You look at it like like you know I've said his name before, but like. You know, watching J- Young Clowney from a distance, and you know, and like I've watched him since he was in high school, and uh, uh, but then when he came to the Seahawks for the first time, I was ever like right next to him. This dude is like, um, like, like even if you if you was the world's greatest artist, you probably couldn't sketch a dude that looks like him. Yeah. Just, wow. I mean, just how tall and long and muscular and like athletic that this dude is. You know, it's just unbelievable. So like those types of dudes are coming to the league. Finally, the league is like you know really embracing you know, the African-American quarterback. So bringing along athleticism, being able to run the ball, being able to throw the ball, all those types of things have just unbelievably changed the game. You know, uh, being able to be uh, creative in the route running. Like, so the routes haven't changed. It's just like how you, uh, the combination of routes, how you grouped them together has kind of people have gotten more creative in how they do that to get dudes open and make and put a lot of pressure on a defense to, to figure out who to defend. Like a lot of that stuff has changed. Uh, which, you know, it's just like I just go to practice sometimes. I'm just like, man, like I can remember being like the biggest dude on the field. And right now, like I wouldn't even be the biggest dude on the offensive line. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, and that was I was 300, 300, over 300 pounds. Like these dudes are gigantic big dudes, you know what I'm saying? And, and really athletic and skilled. Um, and so I think that has, you know, just that alone has changed 
just the, the speed of the game. I think that has contributed to some of the injuries in the game because people are bigger, stronger, faster, you know, and all having bigger collisions and all that. Uh, and then I do agree that, you know, there are parts of the game that should be that safety should always be part of it, like looking out for player safety. However, there are some of it that is just like, what do you expect a guy to do? Yeah. You know, yeah. like, yeah, if I'm if I'm coming to tackle you and we're going to collide, it's everybody's natural instinct to go like this, to yeah. put your head down. And so if, if I'm the defender and I'm aiming for your you know, below your shoulder and you're the runner and you decide to put your head down because that's just your natural thing. But then as a defender, I get the penalty for the helmet to helmet contact. And it's like it's like it doesn't take into account that people are moving, you know. So mm-hmm. I, and when I launch, my angle might be the right angle. But by the time I make contact, if that if the person I'm hitting changes their angle and I hit a helmet to helmet, like like I understand the safety thing, but man, to find a dude to kick a guy out of a game like in college and all that kind of stuff for that situation, to me that's a little bit that's a little bit harsh and hard to hard to do. You know what I'm saying? It's hard to coach that out of people too because that's just you know, anytime anytime you've been attacked up in this area, your natural instinct is to do this. So now you're telling people, hey, you're going to be attacked up in this area, but I want you to do that. Like, I want you to put your face in it versus taking your face out of it. It's just impossible to do. It was, um, like, players take advantage of it now, don't they, as well? Who was it? Was it, um, was it Diggs or DJ Reed on Hopkins in the Cardinals game where they didn't even, he didn't even touch him with his head? Right. And, and then they, and they he do went the down, whole acting thing. Yeah, and he acted and all the flags came in. And it's like, you're all watching it. And it's like, he didn't even touch him, and they didn't even yeah. look at it, and they didn't even go, oh, actually, he's playing up. He played us like yeah. a fiddle. Well, even like even now, like the hits on the quarterbacks, like they have this much space to hit a quarterback nowadays. So they, they should just put a flag on them, and you pull the flag, they're down. <laughs> because the, the, the chance of you tackling them and not getting a penalty or a fine is, is pretty – it's pretty uh, high. It's a high chance you're going to get one of those two things. And then you have the quarterback selling it now, like, oh, you know, doing all their stuff and, like, looking up for the flag and all this other kind of stuff. And it's just like, man, like, so some of that some of that part as an older school player, you go like, gosh, I wish that that wasn't in the game. But you also understand, like, you know, having friends that have had, you know, issues, you know, uh, beyond the game and stuff like that, you understand what they're trying to do. It's just that some of the way they try to police it, is next to impossible for especially defenders to, to actually play the game. Because technically, like, we got all the rules and stuff, you know, as a broadcasting. They give us all these new rules so we kind of know what they're emphasizing and stuff throughout the season. So when they started talking about this helmet-to-helmet stuff, there's actually a rule in there that, like, if you're a guard and you're pulling and you're trapping a defender, you know, linebacker, the other defense lineman, well, you know, as a, when you're pulling, it's like you go, to, you go in the hit like this. And so technically, to the rule... You, if you leave with your helmet for a guard on a block like that, that's supposed to be a helmet to helmet, you know, uh, rule. You, they want you to leave with your hands, and so. Yeah. But if you, but but they never call that, you know. What I'm saying? And and the and the running backs are not supposed to use their helmet as a weapon, but you see it all the time. They put the helmet down yeah. to to bust through the hole or bust through the player. Then the other player put his helmets down, and he gets called for the helmet to helmet thing. So it's so like you know wishy washy and all that kind of stuff. And and the one thing I would say is like. I'm up for like trying to make the game as good as you can make it, but human error and, and that type of human adversity is part of it. So even like all the freaking replays, trying to make the referees perfect, trying to make every call perfect. It, to me, it just takes away the human element of overcoming adversity in it. Cause most more like 
99.9% of the time, all those calls tend to like even out throughout the season. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like yeah. obviously like the, the call where the, that cost the, the Saints getting, you know, advancing the playoffs or what have you. Like, that's a big deal. But, that man, that's that's not happening every year in every game. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of like a like a once in a, you know, a long time thing that's going to happen. And uh, so this this idea of trying to, like, remove the impact of the referees and try to make the game perfect, to me, it's just, I don't, it just kind of ruins the game for me because part of it is, like, overcoming that type of adversity. Like, you get a bad call and you have to overcome it or – or the referee, you know, uh, you know, doesn't make the call that need to be made. You have to overcome it, you know, like because people will not remember that even in the in the Saints game, they had two other opportunities to win that game after that penalty, and they they either I think it was a bet they just called like a bad play or they missed the pass or whatever, so they still could have overcome that play and made it to the and and, and advance. So it's a uh, that part of trying to like make everything so perfect in all the calls and stuff like that. It's just like I get into it with some of our guys on on the broadcast team because they're like, oh, why don't they put something in the football or where you can measure and make you know if they got the first down or not and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, man, like there's some things about the sport that should just always be there. Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, so if yeah, all of a sudden yeah. we have these electronic chains, it's like something about that that makes it different. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm playing like video game at that point. It's like you always have dudes carrying the chains and <laughs> and having to pull it tight with the chain and get the thing, you know, and maybe they, maybe they cut the chain too short or something. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? But like, that's, that's, that's always to me that has, if you take that away, it always, it almost feels like it becomes something different. You know what I'm saying? And so I just don't, I don't like the idea of like all the technology coming into the sport to try to perfect the sport. Cause it, to me, it kind of changes it a little bit. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, um, James and Pez will know this very well, but over here in England, you know, you get the controversy in, in soccer with VAR, the video assistant referee. Yeah. And, you know, you, you're watching, like, I know it's a completely different game, but, you know, you you see the plays and they'll have, so you have one player, he'll be offside, and you'll have one player who will be, you know, an inch behind <laughs> him, like that. And they're sat there on the screen, they've got a man, and he draws a vertical line along the pitch. And uh, then the next player, they draw another vertical line behind him, and the difference between them will possibly be, you know, maybe one or two millimeters. Right. Know, there'll be nothing in it, and they'll rule the goal out for offside. It, and you know, there's the players can't celebrate, the fans can't celebrate, and yeah, it, it messes just, up the flow of the game sometimes. It's too much too, technology. You know it, yeah, because yeah, it takes sure. so long to come up with a decision, so all the energy goes out of the stands and yeah, out of the yeah. fans, and out of the stadium, and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I, I, I do. There are some things that I do like, but I just think that you just that you can reach a point to where you're doing it too much, and it just it takes something away from the game. Yeah, yeah for sure. With the, like with the NFL, it just seems like part of it. Since I've been watching it, you know, like video refing and stuff, they seem to have it quite well for the game. But like with our soccer over here, our football, it's like things like you you can't use your hand to score a goal. Right. But. Like, I support Liverpool, and the amount of goals that have been disallowed where his hand, his fingers, have been all past the defender, and like, no, he's offside. <laughs> Ridiculous, isn't it? They're not, they're, not all, they're not all Maradona. Like, they're not going to all swipe the ball and get away with it. Like, there's no advantage with his fingertips being over the line. It's, honestly, they try to take American video refing yeah. and just completely destroy it. Yeah. <laughs> I watch a lot of soccer, but I have watched enough to know that the, the video assistant refereeing is, is like really 
really tough. And then, and then, like I said, even even here, like uh, like last year when they were trying to do the whole challenge to pass interference and stuff, mm. that was a debacle, dude. There was so many times where your eyes like are not lying. It was pass interference. And then they do the video and be like, nope, no pass interference. And then there's times where you're like, okay, that wasn't pass interference. And they're like, oh, yep, pass interference. It's like, what are you looking at? Like, what, like exactly what are you looking at? You know what I'm saying? So if, if it's going to be that bad, then let's just not have it. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, there, there, obviously there are some things that, that they do well. But to me, uh, sometimes even though they say like, oh, we're going to keep the reviews to like one minute, they never stick to one minute. They end up in two or three minutes. So like even if you feel like you have like a psychological momentum in the game or something or another like you um um you, that you kind of lose that waiting for the waiting for the review you know if you if you're if you're running the ball on the team or you know, you're throwing and there you got the defense gassed and all this stuff and then all of a sudden there's a review and it lasts for two or three minutes well now they, that team didn't even have to take a timeout and now they, they've refreshed you know so it's like so okay. parts of it so, so there's some some give and take to it i i like i said i don't uh oppose all of it but i do oppose the idea that uh, that we have to keep finding places to put technology and review in to try to make the game perfect because it's an imperfect game that should always be a part of it. There's lessons, life lessons, and things like that you learn from from enduring those types of things, and uh, and then it also stops people from from crying for for penalties or you know call you know trying to you know over exaggerate to get a penalty flopping or whatever you want to call it. It's like come on man, it's football, right? Like we we run into each other, we smash each other. Like all this stuff, and then all of a sudden, someone's going to barely touch, and you're going to act like you just got hit by Muhammad Ali or somebody. You know, it's like, come on, <laughs> yeah. man! Like, you know, like that's not yeah, part yeah. of the game. You know what I'm saying? That's not what people sign up to watch. You know, and, uh, and so yeah, so I, I don't. It, a lot of it I agree with. I just don't want it to be oversaturated with that kind of stuff. No, definitely not. No. Um, and what, what are your thoughts on the current Seahawks team then, Ray? So, do you think we'll be? in a position to lift silverware again soon or do you look at the nfc west and teams like you know outside of the nfc west and like the chiefs and the bucks and is the competition too strong for another sort of a reigning supreme team or you know you know i don't, I don't think it is I, I think um you know even last year it was a disappointment you know in in the playoffs and losing to the rams the way we did and mm. and uh uh kind of coming down the stretch where we we weren't like the team we were in the first six or seven games and uh but i think that was based on just not offensively not making the adjustments that that needed to be made and i think that's why the the offensive coordinator was changed and hopefully everything that we're hearing here and from uh the tight end that was there that we just signed uh the dude is a very creative mind mm -hmm. listening to uh what uh title lockett has said recently about uh moving him around in the offense and you know giving the defense more to look for uh developing the short game intermediate game and the long the long ball has been sounds like it's part of the focus uh for the offense right now and then i love the moves that they've made on defense you know even bringing in lately the alden smith dude who mm. you know if he plays 30 percent of the snaps that'd be great if he gets you know five to eight sacks this year that'd be great like they don't need him to be a dude that plays every down uh, they just need him to be a guy that can get after the quarterback. And so if you can keep him fresh so that he can be at his best during that time, I think he can still get you, you know, five to eight sacks, bringing Carlos Dunlap back. And, you know, I don't think people understand the uh, emotional and mental impact that he had on the team because yeah. people will see what he did on the field and like, oh, he got everybody better and the sacks went up and all this other kind of stuff. 
but it was his press conferences where you were just like, oh, wow. Like, I think I think he, because, you know, he's coming from Cincinnati, he's coming to an organization that's winning and things, they do the things the right way, and his way of expressing that, and you can see the joy in his face and, and just in how he went about it, I think it reminded those dudes like KJ and uh, and Bobby and, you know, those guys that had been here for a long time. I think he reminded them of what it's like to play here, like yeah. that it is different than been in other places, you know. And uh, and to me, that was also part of the defense making a turnaround, like just understanding, like, oh, that's right, like we're that organization, we're that team, we you know we do things that way. And uh, and so I think that was a big deal to bring uh, Jamal back. You know, I mean, uh, to bring Dunlap back, and then hopefully mm-hmm. they're gonna get Jamal back because Jamal, um, you know, he does have a little bit of renegade in him like it's like oh don't come out of coverage oh good sack you know what I'm saying? like that kind of thing you know like <laughs> you know? and uh but uh but uh but i think the if he's back and really starts to really understand the defense and how all the pieces put together it'll make him even better and then he maybe he's not making as many chances like that and giving up a pass here and there uh but his just mentality and his production are just you, know, you just can't you can't duplicate that. So I liked some of the moves, the guard Jackson that they got from um, that they traded for for uh, the Raiders. You know, using a fifth round pick to get a dude like him. Like there's like people say, man, you gave him a draft pick. I promise you, they were not going to find a fifth round pick that was as good as this dude right here. Mm-hmm. Like this this guy's a legitimate like you know like pro Pro Bowl candidate type guy. Very smooth in how he blocks. Really good getting up to the next level. Good feet, pass protection. A, a ginormous upgrade from Upati, who was at the end of his career, and then uh, Jordan Simmons, who kind of goes in and out from time to time. Yeah. Uh, enormous upgrade to play alongside Dwayne Brown. And, you know, Dwayne, I think Dwayne has a couple, you know, three, four good years left in him. Yeah. Uh, I like Damian Lewis, the right guard. The dude, they stuck him in at the starter at the very first practice of training camp, and he just never looked back. Just looked no. like a pro, like, Obviously, the things he need to learn, good stuff. But I think even with bringing Posick back at center, and folks are saying like, "Oh man, like we need to upgrade center." I don't think they understand how uh, how much more you upgrade the center by having two really good guards. Hmm. Uh, because if they if you have two really good guards, if you look at Britt when he was having his best seasons, yeah, it was when he was playing between DJ Fluker and Upati when they were both healthy healthy yeah. guards and they were playing good football. And then all of a sudden, Britt was looked at as like an All Pro type center. I think the same thing can happen for Posick. Not that he's going to be an all-pro type center, but he's a very smart dude. He's a very athletic guy. He's not the most powerful dude in the world. Uh, but with those other powerful dudes around him, I think it's going to elevate his game and uh, and make it so that the center isn't going to be this eyesore that people think it is. And then if you look at Shell at a right tackle, man, he, he was on his way to like really having a breakout season before he got injured yeah. and, and missed some games down the stretch because he was playing better than I expected him to play. Like, I thought he was obviously an upgrade from um, uh, Jermaine Effetti, just in that Jermaine just had – Jermaine, to me, is a good football player, but just with some of the penalties and then a bad play here and there, he, it had just worn thin here in Seattle. Uh, and so I think they needed to – I thought it was good for Jermaine to move on, and I think it was good for, for Seattle to move on from him. But then it was also good that they found Shell because he, he was having a breakout season – and I think he's going to perform well. So I think, you know, people are kind of sleeping on the Seahawks 
uh, you know, based on the conversations that they've been having around Russell and the protection and all this other kind of stuff and whether or not people think the offensive line is upgraded or not. Uh, I know we have some questions at cornerback right now, but mm-hmm. the Seahawks always seem to find good corners one way or the other. So I'm not really worried about that position. And so, you know, you keep hearing that maybe the 49ers is a team to beat. But uh, if the 49ers are the team to beat, then I think the Seahawks are right there right there with them. I think the Rams are a little bit scary because Matthew Stafford, I think, is going to be a big, huge difference in that mm-hmm. offense. Uh, but I think if Seattle can um, uh, present a better uh, offensive game plan against Aaron Donald and whoever else they puts out there with him. Uh, <laughs> Just Aaron <laughs> I, Donald I think, alone. I, yeah, I think, they'll, I think they're going to be able to be right back in the playoffs. And yeah. once you get into the show, man, who knows? You know, who knows You know what's going to happen? So, uh, you know, we I know some of our fans complain like it's it's yeah we're getting there but we're losing in the first round but you still have to get there to have a chance and there's a whole lot of teams that don't get there and don't have the chance and the Seahawks keep giving themselves chances so the more the more opportunities you get there the more likely you're going to get to the big show. Definitely, absolutely. And like I say, it was when you when you talked about Carlos Dunlap there about coming from you know, uh, uh, a culture that sort of is being used to losing, like you mentioned before, like guys coming out of college and, you know, they forgot how it feels to lose in a way. And then, you know, they go to these teams, they get drafted. Yes, you know, he'll have been very happy to get drafted by the Bengals. But, you know, for the course of his career and his legacy and what he wants to achieve in his career, you know, he'll he'll be getting frustrated. So to come to a team like Seattle, like, yes, you know, we're not winning the Super Bowl at the minute. We're not going to the Super Bowl. But, we're still, you know, 11, 12, 13 win type seasons. And, you know, I think you're right. It's sort of just lifted everyone and sort of reminded everyone like, hey, we're not, you know, we're we're a really lucky sort of position to be in as, as part of the Seahawks in a way. Yeah. And, you know, some people would take that as like, well, you you can settle for the playoffs. And it's like I'm not settling for anything, but I'm not overreacting either. Like, yeah. you know, like, like, like you can still put pressure on the Seahawks as a fan or fan base or whatever to improve and all those kinds of things. Uh, and still be appreciative that they still make the playoffs every year. You yeah. know what I'm saying? But if you act like this the worst franchise in the history of the world because they lost in the first round of the playoffs, then I'll say, well, go cheer for the Jets. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> cheer for Cincinnati. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like go 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 cheer for some of those teams. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? That, that don't like their season is over after the first five or six games of the season. Mm-hmm. Like go 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 hang out with them for a little bit and then come back and and then see like dang like we're into the playoffs and I'm sitting here bitching about. The playoffs yeah. is enough, you know what I'm saying? So, like, you can, you can, it doesn't have to be an either or. It doesn't mean you have, like, if you're going to put pressure on them, that means that you can't appreciate what they've done. And yeah. then if you, if you appreciate what they've done, doesn't mean that you can't put pressure on them to be better. You can have both of those things and just, and just be, just have them in the right perspective as to how, you know, how it plays out. And so I'm in that space where I think there are obviously places where the Seahawks need to improve. To me, like the, I think hopefully this offensive coordinator is one of them. Like their scheme and all that kind of stuff. I think it's, yeah. you know, I think there needed to be pressure for on them to improve that. But I also know that like this team is going to get to their ten or eleven wins, and mm. we're going to be in the playoffs. And if you're in the playoffs, you're going to have a chance to win. So I'm not going to discount and discredit that either. No, no, definitely not. Pez, do you want to go, Matt? Yeah. To wrap things up, um, just on the current day. Um, what was your motivation to get into the Special Olympics? And because do you still do your high school coaching? I don't. I don't do uh, high school coaching like with a team. But like, if uh, I have a like players around town that will contact me and do some training, like that kind of stuff. Uh, right now, I am. Uh, I have a ten year old. Uh, 
16 year old son that's uh, just finished 10th grade, 6'4, 245 pounds, and uh, plays left tackle. And so I'll be his personal coach oh, my for, the next, for the next few years to try to, to, try to get him right and, uh, uh, and have him you know, succeed as much as he wants. Uh, but then with Special Olympics, man, like I grew up very poor and just have just always been felt like I was gifted at being the voice of the voiceless. So giving people a voice that don't tend to have it. And so I've always tried to uh, educate myself and inform myself in a way that I could always be that. So when I was in college, you know, uh, I used to go. I got asked to come and speak to, um, you know, kids that were in like juvenile detention. Uh, I, I I had friendship with this one judge in Charlottesville, Virginia, that would have guys that were like, you know, getting in trouble in school and stuff, and he didn't want to send them to juvenile detention. So he'd say, hey, Ray, can you come and speak to him? Like stuff like that. So I'm always looking for opportunities to help people that are been marginalized or looked at as less than and all that kind of stuff, because I just felt like, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I always had something to say. I was always doing good stuff. But because of, you know, my family life was so chaotic and stuff, people didn't see it. And so I'm sitting there going like, hey, look at me. They're going like, well, what are you doing, dude? Like, no one's paying attention. I can remember even some of my best friends, when I started getting recognized in college as being like one of the top players in the country, they'd be looking at me like, what? And I'm like, dude, are you watching the games? Like, like who are you watching? Like, like what are you doing? What, like, like are, have you not seen me play? Like, how can you say what? You know what I'm saying? Like, why are you killing people? You know what I'm saying? But, but you know, and so there's a lot of people in our in our world or society, you know, culture, country, what have you, that because of their circumstances, you know, whether they're in underrepresented communities or they're underrepresented populations or they're poor or they have disabilities or whatever, we tend to look over them and just assume that they have nothing to offer. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing that that person is going to be able to do that's going to help enrich my life. And so why should I pay them any attention? So let's go after those shiny objects that are, that, that are the loudest voices and they think they're impacting my life. And so I've just always been in the frame of mind to do like that type of work. And so in 2018, they were doing the Special Olympics USA Games here that they do like every four years. They were doing it here in Seattle. And they asked me to be uh, an ambassador for it. So I was going around doing a lot of fundraising opportunities, bringing awareness to the games, talking about inclusion and uh, belonging and that type of stuff. And they came to me and said, hey, man, we have this job that we're developing in Special Olympics. North America um, that is like in charge of our urban and city programming. So like in our most at need communities in our country, we don't really have a implementation in the footprint of our programming in their schools. And we think that you could be a, a good, you know, fit that, fit that job. And so all I knew about special numbers at the time was that they had these events and I went and passed out awards and stuff like that. I didn't know it had this other piece to it, which is this unified champion schools. And Unified Champion Schools is three components to it. There's uh, sports, unified sports, where you have persons with and without disabilities on the same teams, whether it's basketball, softball, soccer, bowling, bocce ball, anything we can, badminton, golf, anything we can, you know, sport we can create. And then there's also inclusive youth leadership where uh, the clubs and things in the school are have representation from everybody in it, including the folks with with disabilities and they're making decisions around what's going on in school or putting on assemblies or they uh, or they put on this third component, which is what we call whole school engagement, where they say, hey, this one day we're going to have a field day and it's going to you're going to go through all the drills with some of our special Olympic athletes so you can be aware of their abilities 
and not necessarily their disabilities. And so you, so those three components, sports, leadership, and whole school engagement, make up our unified champion school model. And so that's what I try to get into all of our urban city school districts all over the country. And so I travel state to state, city to city, district to district, school to school, talking to coaches, parents, principals, teachers, mayors, superintendents, like whatever it is to try to get our programming into those places because the outcomes are this idea around belonging, this uh, uh, more uh, meaningful relationships, health-wise is better, uh, their education improves, their personal life lives improve, their health improves, the whole thing. And so uh, we, uh, I just want to make sure that, that everyone that, that has, I want to make sure that all those folks have access to those outcomes. And so that's kind of how I got involved. And so I'm the director of urban development for Special Olympics Unified Champion Schools at Special Miss North America. Wow. That's, re that's really impressive that. Um, it's kind of like, because you, you hear stories about players who leave the NFL and then they get a bit lost in themselves and mm -hmm. things like that. And it's just impressive to hear, like, you must it must be up there with your career as an achievement because listening to that, it's like, if you weren't an NFL player, you'd be an extraordinary person just to talk to. Oh, just, thanks, mate. Just because of that, it, it impresses me, that, that kind of things that people are... Because... You do see people who put their name on a foundation and they just don't, yep. don't they do good work. But it's like you're not putting your, you like you said, you're an offensive lineman, you kind of like to keep yourself to yourself. Mm -hmm. You're not like, oh, look at me, look at me. It's all about right. me. I'm Ray Roberts. I used to do this. It's like, no, you genuinely want to help these people without, oh, yeah. without any self recognition. Exactly. And so, like, honestly, to be honest with you, like, uh, a lot of guys will think, and I talk to folks about this all the time, and I'm actually speaking to a, a, a eighth grade class next week in Pennsylvania. A guy just put a, posted on Twitter like, man, I need someone to talk to these kids. They're just focused on getting to the NFL, and they're in eighth grade, and they're not paying attention to all these other things. And so um, I said, hey, like I'm your guy. And so just connected with him on Twitter. And uh, because to me, football was never my final destination. Like, a lot of people will think, like, oh, man, you hit the lottery, you made it to the NFL, like, how can life be any better? And it's like, well, that was kind of like a Ray Roberts thing, but life is about, it's bigger than me, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, like the like my, my legacy of what I want to leave on this earth has zero to do with football, but it has everything to do with how the impact I've had on people, on the lives of the people around me, through how I help them, how I serve them you know, how I help them achieve, inspire, encourage, like all those types of things. Like those are the God-given gifts that I have that football has given me, uh, football has opened up a lot of doors for me to be able to use those gifts. And that's the way I look at football. Football, like the only, I'll use my NFL career if it means that I get to open this door so that I can make something better for everybody else. But I'm not, I don't use myself as football to be like, hey, how, what can Ray Roberts get out of this? It's like, you know, so like even at Special Olympics, I'm like, Hey, like if you need to use the idea that I, you know, that I played in the league and stuff like that so that we can get in front of somebody so that we can maybe move them to do this work, then do it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, because that's what it, that's what that's how I use it, you know, and uh, because, you know, when I when I look back on my life, if if it's all summed up in that I could run, block, tackle, throw, catch, then my life is suck. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Like if if, yeah, if, yeah. if that's all you can say about my life at the end of the day, 
is like, man, he was a hell of a football player. Like, then I haven't done anything. You know what I'm saying? I haven't accomplished anything. Yeah. I, have, I have not made an impact in the world around me. And, and you know, I just think if more people got out of their own way and, and tried to adopt this idea that your, your, your position on your place on this earth is to make it better for the next person, mm. right? Then all for of this sure. stuff that we're dealing with, all this racial stuff, all of this cultural stuff, all this political stuff, it kind of it, it'll, it'll still be there, but it, some of the edge of it will go off. You know mm. what I'm saying? Because you're you're if when I when I leave this earth, if there's a lot of people that can be like, "Yo, man, this dude didn't know me from Adam, and he bought me a meal," or he because I talked to him, like I was able to learn how to do this thing, or he inspired me to go get that thing, or to get more education, or to get you know be a better dad, or a better daughter, or a better son. All these different kinds of things. That is a, that is that will be the indication that I live a good life. Not not that I played in the NFL for nine years and like you know bloodied somebody's nose or got my nose bloodied or you know <laughs> you know what gave up a sack or didn't give up a sack or like whatever it is like like that stuff is so small in how I see myself and uh, uh, not that it wasn't important and it wasn't a passion because you know like I said earlier I was getting super jacked up just talking about blocking people you know what I'm saying so so like like I love every single bit of it and I'm not diminishing it I'm just saying that like that is such a small part of who I am and what I want to leave on this earth. You know, like, like really like my legacy in football matters zero to me. My legacy of my life. And as a person matters 1000% to me. So I, I, I don't care what people think of me as a football player, what my career was. I just, I'm just more interested in you know, what people will say about me uh, once my life is over and they talk about the impact that I had on the world. Yeah. For me personally, I just say like, just speaking to you for the first time today like you're doing justice to yourself because you're just inspirational person just for oh, me personally you. just listening to you and your passion it's your passion what comes out and it's like it'd be a waste if you didn't use the tools you are using right yep. now because you've got it there all there in abundance and you like you said so many people waste what they've their natural ability just because say because they can't, can't catch that 60 yard bomb anymore they're like mm. i'm just gonna go and get drunk and then I'm going to waste the rest of my life because yeah. that's what I used to have it. Yeah. I just, you're it's in a, it's really a, I would say that transition is, that transition is tough, right? Like if, if your identity is built around being this football player, celebrity type dude, and you're not grounded and rooted in other things, uh, when it's over, like it, it is, it is a tough t- cookie to deal with. Uh, but if you, if you're can put your, ego aside and reach out to people and say like okay like now what like i have no idea what know what to do right now and uh because i did that like i I had a group of dudes and i just said dude like i'm 32 years old and i don't play golf so i'm not gonna be going and playing golf every day i don't like to travel you know what i'm saying so i'm not a so i'm not gonna be traveling the world and all this other kind of stuff i need something else to do so what do you guys see in me that do you think is and so and so they just kind of affirm what you think of yourself they're like dude like you're great with like young people like all this other kind of all these kinds of things so then i'm like okay well then how do i inform that piece of me so i went back to school got a master's degree in and leadership and stuff like that so i learned a lot about like our school system and who gets access to education who doesn't i went and took an entry-level job at microsoft to work in diversity equity and inclusion just to understand that because i thought diversity was just another way of saying 
race and then I learned that it wasn't that it and that in diversity includes everything you know life culture where you grow up the region you grew up in skin color gender the whole nine and so it was an awesome experience for me to be able to do that and so all of that just to inform the work that I'm doing now so that so that I can inform the gifts and talents I already have in a way that I can then express myself to make an impact and to those around me and so that's the way I've always just kind of looked at it and so some of the guys do you know athletes you know that they, they can get stuck and uh but it's to me when i've worked with some of the athletes like that the hard part is for them to just say is to realize that that part of their life is over but they have so much more to give oh, and so sure. sometimes you have to like highlight that to them and say like this is man look at what you're doing like this is what you're capable of da, 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 da. how can we how can i help you get to that place so i, I network with them i meet introduce them to people i give them ideas what to do like so i do on the side my little side hustle i do like this i call it life coaching so it's like, uh, and so I'd work with uh, corporate folks and I just work with people that are just trying to move, they're in transition in their lives and they're trying to move from one place to the next place. And so I work with a lot of people uh, around that kind of stuff. And when I first started doing it, there's a bunch of athletes that are just here in Seattle, whether they're professional basketball players, football players that are just like, man, like, what, like, who am I? What do I do? Where do I go? You know? And so I just started working with other people that, that could help me and we started figuring out systems and things to do to help folks. And, um, and that's just kind of how I've always been and who I've always been. And it just kind of helps me do it even better. And, uh, and so some of the guys will still struggle. And then some of the guys will, you know, especially nowadays, I would say nowadays it's a little better transitioning from the league because the league does a lot, all the leagues do a better job as a, when you're currently playing, setting you up for when you're done playing. So there's all these continuing education opportunities, all these different workshops all these different ways to, to get different degrees or do job shadowing or uh pitch ideas or you know businesses and all that kind of stuff uh the players are more conscious of that stuff and then the league is better at providing those resources so that your transition from plan to retirement or retirement into like the rest of your life because if you think about it, the league turns over every three and a half years so dudes are are, are you most players only play like three and a half years and you, you hear like all the superstars, oh, he's Tom Brady, 20 years. That's like an, an anomaly. You know what I'm saying? Most, most, most of the career, the average career is like three and a half years. And of those guys that grad, that finish in three and a half years, most of them have never made a million dollars. You know what I'm saying? And then if you think about all the taxes and stuff they've had to pay, by the time they're retired, they don't, they may have a couple hundred thousand dollars, but people think they're super rich because they played the NFL. Well, they need to go get work. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they need to, they, to, pay, to pay that car note, to pay the the mortgage to, you know, to support your family, you gotta, you're gonna have to get a, a nine to five and up and go get work. Well, most of them haven't had to do that. So you have to help work with them, walk with them, teach them how to do that kind of stuff. Well, no, I like, I think that wraps it up pretty nicely. Um, Ray, I mean, massive thank you for coming on with us today. Um, I think we can all say that it was, I, we've had a blast haven't we lads. It's been really no, good. For sure. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Hey, well, I'm glad that you guys reached out, man. Like, I'm always up for, for uh, you know, talking Seahawks stuff or this stuff. So, like, even during the season, you know, at some point in the season, if you just want me to you know, jump on and we can do a recap of the of the games that they've played and what's coming up, like, uh, just, you know, reach out to me and we'll, we'll just make it happen. Oh, we'll take you oh, up on amazing. that. Really. Yeah, definitely. We'll take you up on that. Not a problem. And like I say, I think we can all say a massive thank you and wish you all the best with all your work with Special Olympics. It's it's brilliant with with all the things you're doing off the field after your retirement. So, um, well, thank you guys. I no, no, absolutely loved it, Ray. Thank you very much. Ray. Yeah, thank you.
Have a good one. Peace out. Have a good one, Ray. Thank you.